0: Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I am delighted to be joined by Alex Craner in Monaco. Uh, Alex Craner is a former Yugoslavian, Yugoslavian born and raised, so he's been raised under communism, which gives him an interesting perspective in our current state of affairs. Uh, Alex is a trend analyst and portfolio advisor, hedge fund, well, former hedge fund manager, author of a very controversial banned book called The Grand Deception. And uh, he is watching the upheaval in France. So I reached out to Alex to chat about that and lots more things. So Alex, thank you for taking the time to to chat with me today.
1: Thank you for having me. Great pleasure to join you, Marianne. And warm greetings to all your viewers.
0: So Alex, let's start right in on France. There's a massive uh, chaos in France right now. You wrote a very interesting substack on the topic last week, which I found really quite, uh, quite an expose on the reality of what's going on. Uh, just fill us in on what you think is really going on in France. The media is one thing to say, but that is not necessarily reality at all. So give us a, a, a summary of what you think is, is an accurate depiction.
1: Okay, so just as a as a brief reminder, of what happened and what was the pretext or or the the, the catalyzing event um, on the on twenty-seventh June this year, uh, police officers killed a young 17 uh, year old man called Niall Mer- Merzuk, uh who was driving without a license, and when they stopped him, uh, he was uh, he didn't uh, cooperate. And he attempted to escape to drive away, and at that point they shot him. Uh, now, obviously, this is a—you know—killing somebody for driving without a driver's license is a, is is an excess of force. There's no justification for that. Uh, however, what happened next is that France exploded in in social revolt that in some parts resembled uh, a war zone. Now, you know, the peculiarity of France is that, you know, there is a lot of legitimate grievance against government uh, among the people. And the French people have very low tolerance for nonsense and they are fairly quick to, you know, pour out into the streets and protest. But these protests are generally peaceful. Mm Uh, you know, there's picketing, there's, uh, you know, loud voices, but there aren't uh, mass riots unless, you know, unless there's a clash between the police force and people and, you know, then some stampedes uh, result and so on. But we've seen a lot of that over the past few years. This this was very different. Uh, there were organized groups by agent provocateur you know who were there deliberately to cause mayhem there were attacks on police stations uh i think 40 some police stations were set on fire hundreds of cars were set on fire uh infrastructure was developed shops uh shops were looted all by these uh you know people all dressed in black with their faces covered you know and uh this Looked very similar by the sequence of events and the pattern of, of of the way it developed to what we saw in the United States when the police killed um, uh, George Floyd. You know, pretty much the same thing. Apparently, twenty uh, percent of all the people who were arrested, the police, were foreigners. So, you know, it begs the question: Why were these foreigners so incensed over? Uh, the Algerian over the killings of Algerian youth, and uh, you know what motivated them to go and seek justice for for this out in the streets. Um, I was very, very suspicious of the whole thing, and I thought that the real reason why the the the, the events unfolded in the way they did was because over the last twenty years, but. Even longer, actually, France, even though it has been part of the Western Alliance, has not been an easy partner, and the relationship between France and uh, the United States and Britain has not been um, smooth. It's been it's been tense, it's been rocky, and at times it's been uh, uh, on the verge of diplomatic in- incidents. Um, I believe that what we saw uh, happen two weeks ago was actually a warning and a message to France uh, by the Anglo-American establishment uh, not to break ranks with, you know, the Western Bloc. However, we might call that, I I, kind of tend to call it the Western Empire because France has been breaking ranks with the Western Empire. And uh, I think that, we are still under the logic of either you're with us or you're against us. So, to me, this wasn't um, just uh, French people protesting, as they often do, but that the protests were infiltrated by organized agent provocateurs who uh actually threatened to destabilize France and potentially dislodge Emmanuel Macron from power. And I think that this was organized by the Anglo-American establishment, the you know, the people the people who are ultimately in charge of the
0: Western empire. So the West is concerned that French or France is not uh, their loyalties are not to this Western establishment. And I guess historically we've seen that They did not support the invasion of Iraq. Macron's been very critical recently of NATO, Um, and and then Macron in April was off to China to have a visit, which must have been rather unsettling. And and then Macron is is not, I maybe not all that supportive of even the European Union. So you have there. It sounds like they're concerned about France right now the west is concerned that france may not be the ally they thought they are or were
1: yes i th- i think that if you look at it from the perspective of the western empire or you know i okay so i i like to point out uh, regarding this term empire you know we uh, today we often talk about it as the american empire and you know the, the, there's we tend to conflate empires with nations which is not correct empires always through history uh, have been um networks of vested interests usually usually uh, centered around the the you know financial oligarchy and uh, and corporate oligarchy and the same is the the same is the case today you know and, you know we had british empire we had spanish empire we had french empire you know all of these different things but the the nation only plays the part where because these vested interests infiltrate the 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 governing structures of a nation and then co-opt it in order for the nation to use their you know uh, capital, their military resources, their political and diplomatic resources in order to um, further the agenda of this oligarchy so that's the mm-hmm. empire so you know the Western Empire uh, today is probably uh, a network of these vested interests on the on the axis uh, between the city of London and Wall Street, uh, and I, I think that we're talking about um, the, the 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 global banking cartel.
2: Mm-hmm. It,
1: is, it is obvious that you know for anyone who pays attention. And you know, like when when I say pay attention, you, you have to go a little bit beyond what the mainstream media serves up. That the relationship between, let's call it, this Anglo-American establishment and their French counterparts has been extremely rocky, and uh, it seems that the uh, French elites, you know, the French financial uh, cartel and uh, and their and their industrialist class have been treated with utter contempt by the by the anglo-americans and i think that you know they were they might have been all together on board 3 years ago before the pandemic or you know whatever that was and before the the war in ukraine uh, because these were two extremely important projects for the empire and uh, they were both aimed at kind of cementing the unipolar global order under their you know under their rule but both both projects have failed miserably by now you know both have unraveled and i think that uh the french elites have started to think for themselves because they lost out they you know they've been basically squeezed out uh the you know france had a very important contract with the with the with the australian government they they signed this contract in 2016 for the delivery of 12 conventional submarines for uh, australian navy this was a very large contract at the time when it was signed it was worth 37 billion dollars and in france it was hailed as the triumph of french diplomacy and the contract of the century really really important and it wasn't only about the money and the France and and about France delivering the submarines to Australia, but French also have their interest in the Indo-Pacific region. So, you know, having this uh, relationship with Australia, uh, in a way, uh, reinforced their influence in the Indo-Pacific. And then in 2021, uh, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, and uh, Scott Morrison. Just without any consultations, without France, without any warnings, announced the SOKUS alliance, A U K U S, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they announced that they they simply tear up France's contract, and uh, they say that it, it's going to be uh, USA and and Britain who are going to supply Australia with the with the submarines. So in France, this was this was taken extremely badly. This was this was, uh, you know, the French Foreign Minister called this a stab in the back, and that it completely undermined the the relationship of trust between um, between France and the United States and, the, and and Great Britain. And so, with with all this happening, with the pandemic uh, um, agenda and the war in Ukraine all unraveling i think it's normal that the french elites who are very concerned about their interests around the world and who see that not only is the western alliance kind of getting beat up left and right but that within the alliance they themselves are being um uh shunted and treated with contempt that they would think like well you know this is not working out for us at all maybe we need to make nice with the russians and with the chinese and maybe we need to look into their, you know, um, uh, multipolar integration process because maybe we want to trade with all those nations which now represent, you know, more than seventy percent of the world's GDP and more than seventy percent of the global population and so on. And so, yeah, they probably, you know, sent uh, Emmanuel Macron to China to to improve ties with China. He signed a whole bunch of deals uh they even had a deal for supply of lng uh, denominated in yuan which is which is a terrible affront to the you know wall street and the city of london and so i think that and then yeah the last thing that happened last month in june 2023 right was that in a in a, in a conversation with south africa's president uh, cyril ramaphosa uh, Emmanuel Macron actually asked to be invited to the next BRICS summit, which is at the end of this month, July 23. And so, you know, if if the logic of empire is that either you're with us or you're against us, it starts to look like France is against them. Mm-hmm. And so probably it was time to, to yank Macron's chain and I think that this is what we saw in France two weeks ago. I mean, these you know these these um, these riots have largely died died down.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's been minor minor protests, but you know nothing on the scale of what we saw at the end of June and the early days of July. Another few reasons why I think this is obviously you know uh, there's the fact that twenty percent of all the people that were arrested by the French police were foreigners which you know requires an explanation uh also uh in marseille the protesters attacked a group of chinese tourists which you know like if if your objective is justice for nile merzouk how would you obtain that justice by attacking chinese tourists that doesn't make a, a whole lot of mm-hmm. sense but there is a message in it mm-hmm. and the you know the empires modus operandi is to give messages and will you know like for those who remember when uh 23 years ago um the uh, nato was bombing yugoslavia they made sure to bomb chinese embassy and they 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 hit it with five precision guided bombs not an act you know one bomb could be an accident five bombs is a message
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And so this attack on Chinese tourists most likely was a message as well. Now, the tourists sustained some minor injuries. It wasn't, you know, like it wasn't anything terribly, terribly atrocious. But you know, it was a message. And then the last element, which I think is absolutely bizarre, but you know, legitimate to to look into, is that you know they pre announced this. So uh, you know something I, I I learned on this recent conference last last month uh, is that you know, some people have been paying close attention to this, that uh, these, uh, you know, empire-builder people, they they like to pre-announce what they're about to do. Mm-hmm. And so in 2022, last year, they, uh, they launched this film on Netflix called Athena, and the, the plot of the film is ethnic civil war in France, Which was triggered when the police killed uh, an Algerian uh, origin youth in France. That that triggered the the ethnic civil war. So you know, there's been there's been a lot of elements to suggest that this wasn't just uh, organic endogenous riots that broke up over some injustice that police uh, uh, committed, but that it was actually uh, a planned trigger event. And then the protests were infiltrated by by uh, organized people, organized
0: groups. Hmm. So, where does the military, the French military, stand in all of this? Who do they support, Macron and the French elite, oh. or would they be backing uh, the the you know the Anglo American cabal?
1: That's a very good question, Marianne. I it's very difficult to say. You know. Uh, the french military uh is not very pro macron and macron has uh, already received more than one explicit warning from the french military that they might you know like they might take him down mm-hmm. and take him out and stage a coup so th- there's a real risk there are they pro British and Americans are they pro-Atlanticists? Pro, uh, I I actually cannot say this, but my impression from you know reading a little bit their publications and uh, you know they actually they actually translated some of my articles and published them. Uh, I have a very strong uh, impression, although I might be mistaken. I have a very strong impression that they are not pro uh, Western Empire. That they are more goalist. You know that they are more uh, in favor of an independent French policy. That they are seeking to reinforce France as a you know as a as a as a power in Europe as an independent sovereign uh, power in Europe. And I think that this is uh, maybe the saving grace for France because you know Macron even. Even when he does the right thing, he does it because he he represents the elite strata of, of of the French society. Whereas, you know, the military and the police, and particularly the the gendarmes in France, are are more rooted in the among the people, and uh, I think are more sensitive to the people's genuine grievances and uh, and and you know, so that that's where. That's where I think uh, even the elites have no choice but to try to make a common front with, with the French people, at least in, in this sense.
0: Mm-hmm. So so Macron, I love the way you kind of coined it in, in your recent article. You say he's a Rothschild errand boy and, and a loyal uh, WEF young leader. So he's been playing both sides. And now it's coming back to bite him, because he he's yes. been presented as part of that Anglo-American imperial establishment, and yet now he seems to be switching gears a little bit or switching alliances, right?
1: Uh, yes, I think so. But it's not, you know, it's it's not. I think we have to be careful because the you know, like the circumstances are changing. And so where he may have been unquestionably a loyal World Economic uh, Forum uh, young leader and uh, Rothschild's uh, errand boy, I think that the situation has changed so much in the last three years that these alliances themselves are shifting. There's a lot of backstabbing. There's a lot of recriminations because many, many important uh, plans that they have have gone sour. They didn't work out. So you know, people who are in charge are you know having fingers pointed pointed at them. Other people want to be in charge. Uh, people are losing out. the The French, the French banking and industrialist elites have uh, have not fared well in the, in all this. And so it's it's it, you know like it's it's not necessarily this cynical. Playing two sides in the way that, you know, uh, Viktor Yanukovych has done in, in Ukraine, in the way that, uh, you know, Erdogan has been doing for a long time in Turkey. Uh, it's more, I think, the result of uh, changing circumstances and shifting alliances.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then, you know, let's get a deal from them and then let's you know, it's it's it's. A, I, I think the situation is a lot more fluid than than uh, you know it appears.
0: So then, does France have any alliance with any other country in Europe that might oh. be fe- feeling equally disgruntled? Now, I know Italy's leader, Maloney. On one hand, she talks a lot about nationalism, and then on the other hand, she criticizes France. And then you discover that she's affiliated with the Aspen Institute. That is backed by, you know, the likes of the Rockefellers and the Gates. So she's playing both sides too. But at the end of the day, is she gonna go for nationalism and put Italy first? So it seems as though a lot of the a lot of the European leaders are playing both sides. Or tormented. Yes. It, you know, they so what countries in Europe might come to France's defense and decide. We're not playing for the Anglo-American establishment. We're going to put our country first.
1: You're, you're making an excellent point, Marianne, and you're raising a great question because uh, you're right. There's a lot of leaders that when you pay close attention to what they do versus what they say, you get the impression like, wait a minute, where where is this person standing to begin with? What What, what is going on? And I think that the problem is that politically today in Europe it is extremely di- you know if you're not on board with the global empire, if you're not on board with, um, you know, with the with the um, COVID passes or with the glo- World Health Organization, or if you're not on board with the war in Ukraine, you just cannot come out and say it flat out. So. What we say, what we get instead is that a lot of these leaders, and the one exception here is maybe Viktor Orbán in, in Hungary, who is the only one who actually uh, says what he means and 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 does things in accordance to his rhetoric. Everywhere else, you see one rhetoric uh, and a diff- different action. So, the examples: uh, Georgia, Maloney has expressed her undying support for ukraine um, defense of freedom and democracy blah 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 the whole the whole spiel right and then when italy sent uh, military you know lethal aid to ukraine it turned out it was all junk and uh, i if i remember correctly they sent something like 20 some 21 22 23 armored personnel carriers you know, it looks nice when they load them on the on the truck on the on the on the trains, and it goes. so these shiny uh, toys, except not a single one was operational. The Ukrainians couldn't use even a single one of them. And then I think that Olaf Scholz has been doing exactly the same thing. He's politically in an extremely uh, weak position, but somehow he's managed to maintain himself in power. Uh, he too has been you know gung ho on supporting ukraine but the ukrainians have been extremely critical about the quality uh, and content of the of the military aid that the that the germany the germans have been sending to them and then you know like every so often you get this uh, massive uh, political and, and 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 even public uh, relations pressure on leaders and then they'll go like all right all right all right will send some tanks and then they send some tanks right or you know now after all these riots um france has sent a very large uh military package to ukraine but again you know who knows what's in it maybe it's all junk too um and you know okay i'm i'm not i'm not saying that this was a blackmail and then the uh, macron said like okay we'll send the weapons because the weapons package was already being discussed and prepared before the riots happened, but you know maybe there were snags. We don't know all these details, you know, that are being uh, discussed over the phone by 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 leaders uh, around you know across the Atlantic. But clearly, uh, you know, the Western alliance, European Union, NATO, uh, Britain, and United States, while they're declaring that they've never been more united than they are now, uh, You know, shared values, all of these wonderful things. Uh, behind this facade, there's a lot of backstabbing. Stabbing. There's a lot of uh, shifting alliances, recriminations, and I think that the whole juggernaut is starting to come apart. So mm-hmm. the future of European Union I think European Union does not have any future, that is, you know, long term, it doesn't have any future. I think that for nations like France, and particularly in Germany, there's only one power in the region that is a potentially a credible ally to them, and that is Russia. You know, uh, Germany, for example, to the east is bordering with Poland, which is Practically overtly hostile to Germany. Uh, to the west, it has France, with which it has some territorial disputes, and you know, God knows. To the north, it has Sweden, which has signed a, a military pact with Great Britain. Great Britain is very keen on uh, Germany remaining weak and subdued, as is the United States. Um, so. You know, Germany is surrounded by former f- formerly allies who are actually hostile to Germany. They blew up their Nord Stream pipelines, and I continue to insist that this was not just the United States who did it, but Great Britain primarily. And uh, well, you know, how did how did Liz Liz truss know to text Anthony Blinken within a minute of the pipelines being blown up to tell him it, it's done, it's mm-hmm. been done, or it was done, whatever she uh, the exact words were. So uh, you know,
0: there, there's no there's no Bill- question there's no question who is that fellow that did the forensic analysis on that blow up, and it was absolutely ascertained that this is we know who did this. There's no yeah. controversy. I, I I his name has escaped me, but
1: uh, uh Simon but- Hirsch
0: yes yeah the seymour Hirsch. Yeah. so we but, know but i know, feel
1: for germany seymour Hirsch completely leaves out of the picture the british role there was a british role but he, it's completely he, he left just, out. And a, so he
0: just says it's the americans or or yeah, nato said, or nato
1: no he pretty much blames a group uh, a an Arab group within the biden administration i think mm. it's Jake Sullivan, um, Victoria Newland, uh, Anthony Blinken, maybe another few individuals, but a very small cabal within the Biden administration. I think that Biden was fully briefed and he knew what was going on, even though he he might not know where he is. But you know, he he was he was in the loop.
0: So why would Seymour C- a- exclude England in the you know the in the group?
1: yeah that's that's a great mystery to me but i think that there's a fatwa in the western alliance that great britain is never mentioned mm-hmm. and if ever great britain is is guilty of some kind of a you know transgression it's always presented as as like oh they were just following like an obedient lapdog, the mm-hmm. evil americans but mm-hmm. very often and i think maybe even at all the critical juncture junctures the the initiative and the strategy comes from london it's like uh, you know on my twitter account i very often mention all roads lead to london because Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. it it really Mm -hmm. is in the if you if you pay close attention you you start noticing well you know uh in in november 2019 it was Boris Johnson who practically pre-announced the war on uh, between Ukraine and Russia. You know, he was was delivering a speech in the city of London and uh, he was like in addressing our European friends. He said like the time will soon come when uh, you would have to decide between mainlining uh, Russian hydrocarbons in huge giant new pipelines or standing up for justice and stability, for peace and stability in Ukraine, he practically announced the war. And then, just a few months later, when Ukraine and Russia were on the verge of signing a peace deal, brokered by the Turkish government, it was it was it was uh, Boris Johnson who parachuted into Kiev to tell. Zelensky not to sign anything and to carry on fighting the war.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, all the commentariat unanimously talk about this as though Joe Biden sent him there, that the Americans sent him there, except there's absolutely no reason, no, no evidence, like absolutely no evidence to back up the notion that, the claim that it was the Americans who sent it. The Americans have, you know, like dozens, if not hundreds of CIA agents crawling all over, all, all over Kiev uh they have an ambassador there uh they have anthony blinken and victoria newland who would have been delighted to go to kiev and tell zelensky not to sign the peace deal yet it was boris johnson you know not the german leader not the french leader not the nato secretary general it was boris johnson the prime minister of britain who made sure that peace didn't break out in in ukraine so you know they play a hugely important role mm-hmm. but you know, we always have to blame somebody else, the NATO, United States or whatever.
0: So the city of London is the epicenter of this, these initiatives uh, and this agenda. I,
1: I think that it's, it's inescapable, this conclusion uh, that, you know, city of London is mortar. And of course, you know, I, I, I don't want to say this as, a, you know, it's not an affront to the British people who have been deceived for centuries, you know, like they, they, very very heavy deception is directed at the british people who just simply don't know well today this is changing you know mm-hmm. people, a lot of people are waking up to this but you know for the longest time when people were relying on 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 traditional media uh, you know british people were lied to like lock stock and barrel all the time all the time lied to and manipulated and you know the city of london was playing the you know imperial colonial adventures everywhere around the world and telling the British people, like, oh, look, we're civilizing these savages. We're bringing them uh, progress and technology and, uh, you know, building schools for them and all. And then they were leaving out the the other part. Oh, yeah. But we're also enslaving them and making them uh, dig up their resources and send them to our corporations and enriching us and so forth that that, that whole part they skipped.
0: So so this, I wonder what portion of Brits now understand that the city of London is uh, a rather independent force within their country that is not looking out for national interests at all. And I wonder if the, since COVID, there has been an awakening to this fact, because that, you know, to have the British understand that their interests are not being reflected in all these decisions, you know, there, there's a lot of Brits. And the power I, group in the city of London is very small, so in a yes. sense, you could see a revolution of sorts in England as well, as people become aware that they have been manipulated, deceived. Do do you sense that awakening is happening in England I, as well?
1: I, I I do sense it. However, I cannot I couldn't begin to tell you what what proportion of British population is actually having second thoughts. You know, there's a there's, a, you know, like in, in in Britain, the, you know, British establishment invents, invests a lot of resources in manipulating public opinions, and and the whole institution of royalty is is a is a huge part of this. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sometimes I I read commentary from British people, you know, on on under under articles or on Twitter or so on, and you know, it's 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 really bizarre that they will. You can tell that by their comment that they get it, but in some cases they will make sure to declare themselves a royalist. And I, you know, like they'll say, like I'm, I'm, uh, this is all nonsense, but I'm a royalist, and uh, I think uh, I see great value in constitutional monarchy. And uh, okay, that's that. So you know, I think that this effectively blunts the, the resistance movement, mm-hmm. you know, that there's, there's, there's a large proportion of British people who still cultivate, you know, this loyalty to their royal family, even though that in itself has been an underhanded three card monte that they ended up with the German fa- royal family ruling over them. And they have these hymns of uh, may he, may she rule over us and blah, 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 and declare their undying devotion and loyalty to the to the to the king or, or the queen whoever and uh, so i think that in this sense maybe there's maybe there really is a cultural difference between the way the french perceive oppression and the way the british people perceive
0: oppression
2: mm-hmm.
0: well as the brits wake up to the fact that their royal family is not British but actually is traditionally the house of Hanover it's a German royal family that that but essentially took over the British royals it, you would imagine that Brits would start to uh question things a little bit more and wonder about well, the the, the... actually
1: exactly you would you would think that but then there seems to be you know like there seems to be some kind of a blow because I don't think this is even controversial. I I think that most people even know this. I mean this was this was included in, in, in Monty Python sketches sketches and 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 you know in Black Catter uh, you know sitcom. It, it's it's one of the things that one of these things that everybody knows and everybody agrees to ignore. You know, like it's like the elephant in the room mm-hmm. that everybody is committed to ignoring. So I, I, I think it's common knowledge that they're not actually a British family; that they're a German family, but they become accepted, you know. Now they're Windsors and not uh, whatever. But their but name but is. actually,
0: if they look a little bit harder and realize, okay, this Windsor family, who's actually a German family, was very sympathetic to the Nazis. They have a very dark kind of druid background, which is very sinister. You don't need yes. to deep, you know, don't need to go for much of a deep dive to discover how dark the royal family is. So I just wonder if that whole aura around them is changing quickly. And now with King Charles, who is so blatantly a globalist and in world economic Forum pockets, I just wonder if the Brits aren't beginning to reassess their position on all these things. Because the Queen was quite silent about her allegiance. You know, she didn't talk about reducing the world population and all this nonsense. But King Charles has. You yes. know, he's gone on the record, yeah. and he he's he's a very peculiar character. So I just wonder if now that the Queen is gone, the the Brits are going to kind of shake off their um, uh, the, it's like they're in a trance, and start to look I, at things think, a little more realistically.
1: Yeah, I think that's possible because the, because the Queen was well liked by mm-hmm. uh, most people. Uh, Charles is not. No, they, I think he's he's almost universally disliked. Yeah. So I think that maybe this this might begin to catalyze some kind of a change. Mm-hmm. That's hope. But it might it might take time. But you know, like elsewhere in Europe, uh, Germany, France, Italy, uh, you know, many in many countries, these populist movements are gathering a lot of traction lately. And it's you know, like at the moment it's impossible to say what the ultimate effect will be.
2: Mm-hmm. But I
1: think that inevitably in the in the near future, we're gonna see a collapse of the European Union, we're gonna see a collapse of the Euro, and we're probably going to see the the collapse of NATO as well. And the changes that are going to take place from there are are probably going to be very, very radical because many of these countries are gonna you know prefer to trade with you know china and india and russia and 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 uh, iran and you know all these all these middle eastern and african countries that are growing more prosperous every year you know they're, mm-hmm. they're you know like the world is advancing and developing and we are you know uh, Mired in perpetual wars for democracy and freedom, and and wasting our substance and 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 sinking into this like uh, dystopian matrix of a society, I think that people will people will not take it for much longer.
0: So, what do you predict? How is this going to play itself out? Because you've got this is going to be a major shake shake up. How do you predict that this is going to unravel?
1: Hmm. I think it's going to involve a lot of social uprisings. I think the situation in Europe is going to become very tense, probably already this fall. You know, when, uh, you know, we already have inflation. It's not going anywhere. Um, Cost of living is rising. Standards of living are are deteriorating. the winter is coming again there's going to be questions of whether we're going to have enough oil and natural gas to you know heat homes and keep businesses running and uh, i think that the discontent of the people might boil over so what are we going to get uh, we might get a change in government so let's say macron is uh, macron loses and we get uh, the front national or some Gaullist party I think they're going to be much more bold in charting an independent uh, policy. The war in Ukraine is likely to end um, before the end of the year. Uh, I think that European nations are going to have to sit and talk to Russia, except this time it's gonna be on Russia's terms. And I think that they will have no choice but to concede defeat uh, I think that maybe new governments are going to take advantage that it wasn't us, it was the other guys, and to say like, yeah, we're all friends, you know, like let's let's trade again, let's uh, let's do away with all these sanctions. So there's going to be, um, you know, we're going to have a different uh, social, economic, political, and security architecture evolving, and I think that. We're going to go through a bumpy period. It's going to be difficult, I think, for maybe a season or two. But I think that we're going to go into a better future. Once we're rid of the of the euro, I don't know what the next currency is going to be. It's very difficult. If we're going to go back to national currencies or what's going to happen, it's, I think it's impossible to predict. But, you know, the, the the slate will have to be wiped clean to uh, to an important extent. And I think that the future will be much, much better than the present and even, even the recent past. So I think that I'm very optimistic with regards to the future, except that, you know, like we have to get through this rough patch that is ahead of us uh, mm-hmm. the coming year or two.
0: So you envision more nationalism, a reverting back yes. to national borders having authority over their people over their their well you know even when i think of the european community with the currency not having control over that i think most countries would love to have control of their currency again their central banks you know so how because the the western elite have all these plans with the central bank digital currency how do you think that's going to play out? Because this is your word. You're you're in the world of finance. Yeah. And, and there's I, tremendous anxiety about the central bank digital currencies and the EMF being involved in this, and and the World Bank, and well, how do you foresee the future in terms of money?
1: I I don't think that all these plans are going to pan out. I think that the uh, you know the the establishment, the ruling establishment, have their plans and white papers and the uh, ideas about how they want to chart the future. But I don't think they're realistic at all. The central bank digital currency—I know that I know—they're causing a lot of anxiety to people. But there's a there's a huge problem with them: a that they're extremely ambitious. You know, and I've I've spent. A chunk of my professional career in systems development and i can tell you that it's extremely difficult and and a delicate business and uh what what they have in mind is so vast and complex that it's extremely unlikely that they will be successful at uh building and infrastructure and, and, and systems that are actually going to be usable and they're going to function correctly. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea that they will be able to condition your transactions, be, you know, depending on whether you're vaccine compliant, whether you've already used too much gas, whether you ate too much too much protein this month or whatever, i don't think I don't think that's going to be uh, realized. I don't think that's going to be our reality in the future. Um, another reason is that in you know through history, any anytime the authorities impose too many restrictions on the people, people simply migrate onto um gray markets and black markets, and the problem for the establishment is that they don't collect any taxes on black market transactions. So suddenly, you're going to have a huge challenge for uh, government budgets and 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 uh, you know funding funding government functions is going to be a huge problem. So I think that they might try to um, launch some kind of a central bank digital currency but i think it's going to be a flash in the pan i think it's going to fail very very rapidly and then you know what happens then i don't know because you know in 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 the circumstances of crisis people are fairly inventive there's you know like we have we have cases of literally hundreds of uh, local and regional currencies that that pop up like mushrooms so that people could lubricate trade between themselves, you know, so mm-hmm. that the economy can 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 function at least to the extent that you can can buy bread, you can get your car fixed, you can you know uh, you have flow flowing water in your house and so forth. So you know, crisis happens, but people people work it out, mm-hmm. and I think that the uh, the uh, the grand masters of the of the of, of this empire are going to completely fail because they they're not going to be able to control the fall, fallout when they launch a failed system. Re, do you remember a few months ago uh, the Tedros the World Health Organization guy declared monkeypox as the mm-hmm. as the mm-hmm. global pandemic. It and wasn't successful.
0: It wasn't successful. Nothing happened. Nothing happened.
1: Nothing yeah. happened. So you know uh, they they march forward with their plans with their agenda but it's no longer getting any traction. And, uh, you know, there's there's even, there's even systemic reasons for that because, you know, the agenda comes from the very top of the command and control structure. You know, they have the ideology, they have their ideas, they have the plans, uh, they hire really smart people to, you know, do their presentations and PDF documents and all this. But then, you know, like there's a very deep, hierarchy of people who are meant to execute these plans. And the lower you go down the hierarchy, the less important their agenda and their ideology is, and the the more important the actual competence of the people becomes, Mm -hmm. people who are meant to do this. And if the agenda doesn't make sense, if it's idiotic, you can no longer lead competent people. So competent people say like this makes no sense. I'm not doing this. Thank you. And then and then what? Then you know like you're you're trying to manipulate the world, and and your weapon is a wet noodle. You know it just doesn't work.
0: Well, you're very optimistic then. So you're not concerned about a, a collapse of the banks in Europe. You're not concerned like the central banks because actually I I was uh, suspecting that it was the French banks, the two big. Uh, national banks in France that might be the first defaulter. Are you not concerned about that?
1: I'm not concerned about the failure of banks so much as I'm concerned about the failure of the currency. And mm. I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, I, 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 at some point I wrote an article about this because, you know, like while I was sitting at, a, at the hedge fund office we were talking about bank, bank failure literally Almost every day, I don't know, at, in I remember in 2015, 2016, we were expecting imminently that probably Deutsche Bank is going to be failing any day. They never did. Here's what happened. and I, I, I couldn't quite understand because it was obvious that the banks were insolvent, that they were they were failing zombified institutions. Yet somehow nothing was happening, and this went year on and year. Out. So Deutsche Bank was on the death watch since at, at, at the very latest two thousand sixteen, and then, you know, by two thousand by the pandemic, it was still there. And then pandemic was this enormous blow that should have knocked all these zombified businesses out of business, and they didn't fail; they they carried on. They carry on, and then it it, it hit me at some point, you know, like. There we go. Why? Why it's handy that I grew up in communist in the communist system, because for as long as I can remember, from my teenage years, uh, the form, former Yugoslavia was in a in a in a crisis of stagflation, so economy was crap, and we had inflation. But we never had a bank failure, never. So what was going on? What was going on was that the government, and the central bank we're backstopping all the bad debts on the books of uh, of uh, commercial banks and the system just kind of bobbed along but they sacrificed the currency you know to preserve the system they sacrificed the currency because mm-hmm. all the bad debts were papered over with freshly printed currency and uh, the banks stayed in business and all the you know inefficient state companies stayed in business, and people didn't lose their jobs, but the currency was destroyed the currency went to zero we 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 had the crisis of stagflation, but eventually it turned into a hyperinflation mm. and so i think this is this is what's going to happen we're not we're We're probably not going to see bank failures, but we probably are going to see the failure of the British pound and the failure of euro and yen, and I think that the u s dollar is Will prove the most resilient, and will be the last one to fail. But you know, the the failure is a mathematical certainty. It's just you know, it's 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 baked into the equation from the get, get from the get go.
0: That that's very interesting. So essentially, because of hyperinflation that will continue, there'll just be a continual devaluation of the currency that it's it's worthless. But the banks stay intact. During this yes, whole process, yes, that is exactly, very interesting. Exactly. And you think the U.S. dollar will be the strongest or the last, the last bastion kind of standing? Yeah, that will I, be. I, I... Mm-hmm. Well, what about yeah, yeah, because... what about all the BRICS currencies that are emerging? Um, the one that it sounds like they're going. The BRICS nations sound like they're going to be backing their currencies with either oil or gold. So, in actuality, if you wanted to move into a currency that maybe had some future, would it not be the BRICS currencies?
1: I don't know that they're going to back their national currency, currencies with gold. Mm. They might, but that's not that's not going on yet. What they're going to do is next month in August this year, they mm. will uh, launch a new uh, um, trade currency uh a, a currency that they will use for international trade mm-hmm. that currency will be backed by gold that's the plan
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know that's what they what that's what they will do now um you know for any individual nation uh i think it'll take some pain for them to consider going on the gold standard or, or to back their currency with 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 gold because it does very much narrow the government's maneuvering space. And, you know, every government prefers to print money out of thin air and spend it than to, you know, uh, curtail their own maneuvering space. And then, Mm -hmm. so I...
0: So maybe no country will actually truly back their currency with gold. It, It puts too many limitations on them.
1: Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think it'll take some kind of a failure of the system. You know, I think that they they will have to hit an inflationary crisis themselves individually. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to have to be a, a much much broader solution to this problem. I, I look, we definitely need a different money system worldwide. Not not, not just you know breaks. Not just Western. Everywhere mm-hmm. in the world we have. Uh, fractional reserve banking, which is re- which is you know the 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 epicenter of malignancy that is the money. It's a fraud. It's a outright fraud. a fraud, mm-hmm. and it poisons all relations in society. And until we get rid of that, we're not going to solve a problem. We're just going to be going from crisis to crisis, kicking the can down the road. You know, some people will get enriched, some people will do poorly, but we're not going to fix the problem. We need a new monetary standard money has to go from being you know a private privilege of the banking cartel to to being a social service you know like 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 water and roads and electricity money and credit should become a, a social service we need a new architecture i think that my understanding is Russia is the only nation that I know of that is actually on track of creating something like that. And I know you wanted to discuss this because you said you mentioned that uh, it does seem that the BRICS nations are kind of implementing the same Mm -hmm. as the Western Empire. So aren't we just getting, you know, the the new boss who's going to be just as bad as the old boss? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily the case because, you know, electronic currency doesn't isn't necessarily in itself a bad thing. Uh, an efficient, well-managed and well-controlled money system isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It depends on who manages it and for what objective. And so in the West have an oligarchy that controls it and energy to object their own enrichment at the expense of everybody else. I think that we don't need to assume that everybody is exactly like this. I mean, there's a risk of this, and we shouldn't, you know, like, you know, as they say, the, the, the price of vigilance, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, so I, I'm not suggesting that we should be vigilant. But there is a difference culturally between the Western Empire and the other powers like China and Russia. You know, it's it's the Western empire that's wiped out six indigenous civilizations around the world over the last 300 years, that's wiped out thousands of minor kingdoms and cultures and tribes and depopulated enormous swathes of, you know, North and South America and, uh, and uh, in the Pacific region and practically and Africa, everywhere around the world. So we don't necessarily need to assume that, you know, Russians and the Chinese are the same because they haven't done things like this in their in their history. And it's not that we are not, we're nasty. It's not that we individually are, are, are aggressive, uh, you know, unscrupulous people. It's that we, we have been living in malignancies. You know mm-hmm. which manages to compartment compartmentalize things, and you know if if people at the very top don't care about the effects and they don't care if the whole Earth is destroyed and and ninety percent of us uh, perish in the process, um, if they if they set this kind of a system and this kind of an agenda, then that kind of an agenda is carried out. But you know people who are in charge of uh, of uh, of the Russian state and of China are not necessarily the same kind of people. And they, they do have a different cultural um, background.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna play devil's advocate here because I'm here in Canada watching China very carefully. They are imposing massive surveillance. They're imposing the equivalent to 15-minute cities where they monitor your entrance and exit. They're monitoring, monitoring your social media. They already have implemented in, in many areas of China a central bank digital currency, which they cut you off if you do not obey the diktats of the day. So I'm watching what's going on in China. I don't like their model. I don't trust the Chinese model. I know they're part of BRICS, but to me, they are another prisoner. So right now I have to choose between the brick style of uh, surveillance and fascism, or I choose the Anglo-American model under the WEF model, neither is good. So I look at both of these parties as being equally draconian, but with a different style. But I detest what I see going on in China. It terrifies me. And Canada is moving towards the Chinese model. And our leader, Trudeau, praises China and admires their model. So I don't see any good coming from that particular BRICS member, uh, which is very powerful. It's hard to say who's more powerful. Well, I'd say China is more powerful than Russia, but they are the leader of the BRICS in a sense. They're the biggest power broker, and they are, to me, the most scary. Uh, They present the most scary model going forward. Now, what's your, what is your response to that?
1: Uh, okay, so I'm very suspicious, and I'll tell you why. Because you remember when we had a global war on terror uh, 20-some years ago? And then our our information space was absolutely saturated with Islamophobia.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, we all knew that Islam was a religion of violence and blah, 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 all of these things. And I, was, I got very suspicious. Because, uh, you know, like, to begin with, I thought, there's about one with 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. Why would one so 1.6 people in the world choose a religion that that that's hateful and oppressive? And so I picked up a couple of books about Islam, and sure enough, we were being lied to, uh, and I mean lied to in the ways that are absolutely spectacular. And uh, so you know, like I'm 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 always extremely cautious about things that everybody knows and things that are being you know, perpetuated through our not just mainstream media, but also in in social media, and some people perpetuate them in good faith. They just think mm-hmm. that what they what they're saying is true. So, what I started doing uh, in the last uh, two or three years is I, I started finding um, Westerners who actually live in China, and then following their you know Substacks or their Twitter feeds and so forth, and uh, I am not sure that what we think we know about China is true. For example, the social credit system. Um, people who live in China say, like, what is that? We've, we've never heard of this thing. So there are, mm. you know, like the Chinese do have certain, uh, you know, administrative systems for which they have. Electronic uh, internet-based uh, platforms mm-hmm. that are also on your on your smart device for, you know, administration of healthcare and pensions, and you know, state benefits. All of these things. Uh, but th- it's not social credit system in a way that we think it is. Um, apparently, something like eighty or ninety percent of Chinese people support the Communist Party of China. Now, why would that be if their lives are miserable and oppressive? Apparently, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, the central government, has very little control of the people in China. And generally, the conflict tends, conflicts tend to erupt between uh, Chinese people and their local governments. And apparently, the Chinese are are apparently just as eager to protest as the French are. And then the Chinese uh, central government tends to step in, and usually they step in on the side of the people. You know, they, they tend to resolve people's grievances, censure the local government or change the government. You know, they they they, they don't have a whole lot of patience with corrupt, indivi- corrupt uh, officials. Mm, they often get prison sentences. Uh, corrupt bankers get prison sentences or even firing squads and so forth. So anyway, you know, uh, I, I would be I would be very careful. I've never been to China, so I cannot say. You know, I've been to, I've, I've made it a point to travel to Russia and to you know see how it is uh, for myself because you know we we've been listening to horror stories about Russia as well. I'd like to visit China, but I haven't been able to do so. And then my second best is to just you know see what people who live there say. And I think that it isn't as draconian as it's being made out to be. I think that um, the reality of people living in China is, is 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 different from from what we perceive it to be. And then, you know, just as a just as a you know thought exercise, I I, I have the impression that you know because we do have this conflict between two. Systems of governance that is going on. One is our Western colonial imperial system, and the other one is everybody else. But as you, as you rightly say, China is the biggest power there, and the Western officials are always on record that China is the greatest challenge to the you know rules based order. So wouldn't it stand to reason that they should scare the daylights out of us about China so that we kind of uh, close ranks behind? our bastards to oppose their bastards, you know? Mm -hmm. But I don't know which part of what they're telling us is true, and I'm assuming that everything they tell us is a lie. So, um, I can't say, but I'm very suspicious. And then, you know, if it is true, as they say, that large majority of Chinese people support their central government and the Communist Party of China then maybe we, we need to learn more about it before, you know, before we cultivate this fear of China.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Remember
1: what Gandhi mm-hmm. said, the enemy is fear. We thought it was hatred, but it is fear. And the enemy really is fear. And I think that somebody's just like 20 years ago, they were uh, inducing fear of Islam. Now they're inducing fear of China. And I, I'm sure that a lot of what we think we know are, are just outright lies.
0: So perhaps I have been propagandized or and and we wouldn't really know, I guess, unless we get our feet on the ground in that country and I, and talk talk to the people. But I don't even think you can move around that country yes, freely. Exactly. It's I, very I, difficult.
1: I I I wish I could tell you. I don't know. However, I have a good friend, an Irishman, who spent a good chunk of his career in China. He was, you know, advising Western corporations about setting up in China. And so he spent many years there. And when I asked him, he said, Look, Alex, there's two kinds of people in this world. There's people who fear or hate China, and there's people who have been there. So I'm, you know, like I'm looking forward to visiting one day. But until then, you know, I I cannot say for sure.
0: Well, it's interesting because I I used to chat with Jeffrey Sachs from Columbia University when I lived in Oxford, and he visits China all the time. It seemed to me he was in China every month, Mm -hmm. and he seems to be doing contracts. I'm not quite sure what he's up to, but anyway, he spends a lot of time there. And he had a lot of good things to say about China, and I used to argue with him. And give him the Canadian perspective on China because they're in Canada we feel like we're being absorbed by China but he was yes yeah, he seemed to have a different sense of what was going on than I did but he wasn't living in Canada where we feel we feel like we're being you know we uh, people call Canada China I, I, that, I... that's the sense here we're losing our identity and China's taking over and we don't share the same um, values at all
1: marianne i'm 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 pretty certain that the chinese are infiltrating the west mm-hmm. okay i'm not i i wouldn't i wouldn't deny that mm-hmm. i'm I, in fact i know that mm-hmm. they are systematically infiltrating the, the economic uh, cultural educational political structure of western nations but not because they're after us they're not after you and i the chinese are after the western oligarchies and that you know i can't say, i can't say that i know that i know that for sure but i i think i know that for sure okay
2: mm-hmm.
1: um the chinese this is this is a this is a big long and deep story but uh if you'll recall, 15 August 1971, uh, Richard Nixon breaks the convertibility of the U.S. dollar into gold. From the, so, so from this point on, they know they know that they're going to deplete the United States. And when I say they, I'm talking again about this about this imperial Anglo-American establishment. So they know they're going to deplete the United States. They know that they're going to ultimately destroy the dollar, and they know that they're going to need a new host. <laughs> And so the year after, uh, Nixon and Kissinger go to China and they they open up China. Mm -hmm. And uh, from then on, you can see that China went from the world, one of the poorest countries in the world, if not the poorest country in the world, to this global superpower. And they were allowed to flaunt, flaunt all the rules of the Western, you know, World Trade Organization, you know, they they should have been declared uh, currency manipulator, yet they were always shielded. You know, so mm. this Western imperial establishment paved the way for China to get to where they are today. Because their objective and the new global cop. And if you look at the... Um, at the statements of various people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and George Soros and people like this, they were gung-ho in China. They were in China's superior political system and that China will be the next super who will, you know, uh, own the globalization process and all of But now they're not saying this anymore at all. In fact, they completely turned the record, and they're like, "Oh no, China, terrible! You mm-hmm. know, human rights abuses and all of this these things." What happened? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened is that it's, with with Xi Jinping in power, it became obvious, and I think this was intent from the beginning. Even even with Deng, Deng Xiaoping, this was the intent. The Chinese didn't agreed to become the Empire's new host and the new global cop because they actually intended to fulfill that role. Mm -hmm. They pretended that they agreed
2: Mm -hmm.
1: to draw in the Western oligarchies, not to serve them, but to behead them. And they're deadly serious about this. So they are after the Western imperial oligarchy and if you if you pay attention to Xi Jinping's speeches and other Chinese officials' you know speeches, they are very, very sour about their century of humiliation. Chinese youth is being taught about the century of humiliation. they understand perfectly well who afforded them that century of humiliation they know that it's the western empire you know it was it used to be the british empire now it's something else but same Mm -hmm. same thing it's the same structures of power it's the same ultimate beneficiaries they're not going to be serving them they're going to end their end their uh rule so that's i think that i I think mm -hmm. that this is the reason why the chinese are systematically corrupting western officials you know like we know that the biden's are corrupt mm-hmm. and we know that they made all these deals with china and they they made all these millions of dollars but the chinese they have receipts you know they know everything and it's not just the Bidens; it's the feinsteins i don't know who, who in canada but i'm sure that they have receipts on canadian officials they're not after you and me you know china never went around the world colonizing other people uh, they are after the the system that has caused them the century of humiliation because I think that uh, there's always a risk that this happens again because that's how our system works
0: well I I look at them as going after they don't want political power they want economic power and so what yeah. I see in Canada is they are cornering anything of value in Canada that being the uh, the, our natural resources, so they are tying up all the companies that control our natural resources. So if they have economic right. power over us, right. we lose our autonomy, we lose our our independence in a sense. So they're very strategic. they're very quiet, very methodical. They have the long plan. you know, they make yeah. these plans, they they draft their white papers for a hundred years going forward, sure. and they sure. are patient. Yeah and they're discreet. So my concern is with China is that they are very quietly going to dominate our country, but I can't say I trust them. Now, yes, I agree I, with you. The history of the Americans going in and building up China as a superpower. Yeah. That is that is accurate. And there's no question and now they're turning on the US. That's become quite apparent. Now they're the biggest enemy. But um I still don't trust China. So my concern in all of this is I I look at, you know, all of these competing factions that want to dominate us and make us into, you know, slaves. I don't really trust any of the, the masters. I don't view look, one so. as better than another. I think they just have a different style. But I don't trust the Russians more than the Chinese versus the Anglo-American Um, globalists, I think they're all equally evil.
1: Well, look, I I don't disagree with you in the sense that vigilance is due. And so any kind of an economic uh, arrangement has to make sense for both sides. Mm -hmm. And there are completely legitimate reasons why you might not want China to own any part of Canadian infrastructure or natural resources. Yeah. So you might you might say like, okay, uh, you know, our oil resources are not going to be owned by any foreigners. It's going to be it's going to belong to the Canadian people. That's completely legitimate. Mm -hmm. But, you know, these are these are arm's length uh, commercial transactions, investments, investment deals, which should be transparent. And about which people have should have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I ultimately, in a perfect world, what I would like to see is nationalism. Very yes, decentralized, patriotism. decentralized exactly. leadership, decentralized controls, small government, national governments. And that is allow the people to uh, be empowered on a local level and control their destiny Absolutely. locally. So that's Amen. what I think most people want, decentralization. And they want national governments. But that is, I don't think any of these power, well, actually Russia. Russia doesn't seem to be really hell-bent on, on controlling a lot at this point. They 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 kind of backed off, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't say that about China. Uh, They Uh, seem to be making inroads, you know, in in all of Asia, all of Asia's nervous about Russia, what Russia's going to do next, you know, in, in everyone's nervous in, in Asia about what their next move will be. Um, And I, so I, I just wish that we could go to a nationalist model and have, um, have leaders who really have the interests of their electorate in mind, but that seems to have disappeared. That value of a, no, a, I, of a look, you know integrity and, and all of that has gone out the window. So no,
1: but you're I, you're look, more I,
0: optimistic. You're more optimistic than me because look, I think I, also we've got a brighter future.
1: Yeah I, I First of all I, I agree 100% with what you just said. I think that we need uh we need uh we need patriotism. We need uh uh leaders who are going to um well leaders. I mean, we need we need for people to assert their uh rights to assert their sovereignty
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and to demand that their leaders respect that
0: how how, now, did, when, how do you do that though how oh sorry go ahead
1: no no i was no i, I was, was going to say for uh, in, in for with regards to china and uh, any other power uh you know foreign direct investment whatever it's fine but on a case-by-case basis and every single case has to make sense and has to be beneficial to both sides and mm-hmm. in that case what's the problem there is no problem but it there, there has to be an assertion of sovereignty of the people who live in the nation that this is their country and they decide that mm-hmm. they are the they are sovereign
0: <coughs> how do we and, do that well we and we don't we certainly think, don't have that in canada we have people no, but who I are think traitors we
1: simply, uh, i think mm-hmm. we simply have to assert it because it's ours
0: it is ours, but for example, in Canada, if you try to rise up and have a demonstration, they're passing laws that you're not, you know no more than three people can be ba- gathered in public places or like they've done in well, Australia. so a lot of these countries have already passed the laws to prevent the process that would yeah, but, naturally happen um uh, from uh, happening and and censorship laws and so we feel as though we're losing the battle because we've I, lost our voice.
1: I think that those laws uh, probably are void because uh, they're simply not right. Look, I think that it is um, we can't take out of out of out of the equation the the sovereignty of the individual. And uh, you know, we were both at this conference in Bath last month, and I found very fascinating on my panel, there was a Dolores Cahill, there was a Ruth, uh, Karen Ruth Scomley, and another man, I I regret that I I can't remember his name at this moment, but they were talking about the natural natural law, Mm -hmm. which is is a very simple thing. And that is that you act with honor and you don't do harm. And uh, the sovereignty ultimately resides with the individual and I'm I'm sorry that I cannot be completely, how do you call it, articulate about this because these ideas are deals that were almost completely new to me. I was taken aback when I when I saw these three presentations, and I still I I had to rewatch those presentations and take note, and I still have to digest all this. Mm-hmm. But any law that is that is in violation of of individual human sovereignty and the natural law is null and void, and it should be treated like this. And it's true that we will sometimes be um, attacked with violence for asserting our rights, but we have no choice, because this fight is either now here ours, or it's going to be our children uh, who are going to have to take the brunt or who are going to be uh, living in a dystopian matrix for the rest of their lives you know life's not worth living for so we simply have to assert this says who that you cannot gather in these numbers and with what right if i want to gather with a you know this is another thing we had in the in the in the old communist world which you know again by by accounts that you might have heard Remotely might have seemed like a dystopian, but we had absolutely no restrictions about gathering. We could have you know like we could gather when we wanted in as as many of us as we wanted now, if there were riots and and you know uh disturbances, then police would react, but nobody ever challenged anybody's right to assemble, and people did, and we did as kids, you know as teenagers uh I was—I was actually. This was a cultural shock for me because I went to the United States as, a, as an exchange student, and I lived a couple of years there. And there, you had to ask permission to assemble. So, if if, if it's going to be more than so many people, you had to get a, a permit, and then you could—you had to declare the purpose and how many people and all this, and then you could gather. And then there would—you know—like I was in a few gatherings like this. And then there would always be police who were there for the for the duration of the of the thing to make sure that you know nothing funny is going on. Mm-hmm. And I thought you people really think you're free you know in in the communist regime, we were able to assemble when we wanted and where we wanted it, and in as, in as many in, in in as as large a number as we wanted without any restrictions, so you know we have to fix our house. And Mm -hmm. it's not going to be given to us. It's not going to be given us by the oligarchy that benefits from enslaving us. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. our enslavement is their asset. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to claim it and we're going to have to defend it. And probably uh, we might have to reckon with some oppression and some violence because this is what they do. But we also have to keep it under perspective, you know, because it's not like one in ten of us are going to get killed, uh, even even during wartime. You know, there's like a, like a small percentage of the population actually gets killed or injured. So with these kinds of things, you know, some people are going to get hurt. But should we all be compliant, obedient, uh, timid animals, uh, hurt uh, just obeying these 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 degenerate pedophiles? I, I don't think so.
0: So I I do agree with you. People need to stand up. Um, I would say in Canada because the media has such a tight rein over the messaging. The the, the masses are not aware of what's going on.
1: Yeah, which that, is why we, we have to speak out. We have mm-hmm. to speak out. We have mm-hmm. to make sure that we're heard, and we have to encourage other people. I I I haven't owned the T. I mean I I own I own a TV, but it's not plugged into any network. Um, i don't watch tv at all i don't watch watch the media at all period so uh yeah we have to encourage people to question the narrative that they're being fed and served up we need to encourage people to speak out because this is extremely important you know like it's not only what you're going to hear but you're going to recognize other people you know because if i if i say nothing nobody knows that maybe we are many you know, like when you raise your voice, it's the people they say, like, "Hey, I'm not the only one. He thinks the same thing." Yeah. That's you know, yeah. I'm not you, the and crazy then you find.
0: One. So how they do also,
1: you? They also try to. They try to, you know, like if you, if you, if you, if your thoughts are straying into the thought crimes realm, they make you feel like you're the weird one, like you're you're on the margins. And it's only when people speak out that you realize oh i'm not i'm actually there's a lot of us who think the same way
2: mm-hmm. so that's
1: why it's extremely important for people to speak out uh not only to question the narrative but to to actually take an active part in shaping that narrative and i think that people shouldn't be afraid of being wrong because none of us know everything about everything. None of us are repositories of of final, definitive truths. Mm -hmm. But the the wonderful thing that I find is happening in this day and age is that if you're wrong about something, somebody will set you straight almost instantly, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's all these people paying attention and all the people do know everything. And somebody will say like, oh, no, that thing you said, that was wrong. And then they'll set you straight. So you'll be, you know... Isaac Newton 500 years ago said like if i could see as far as i see it's because i was able to stand on the shoulders of giants i think that today not only can we stand on the shoulders of giants i think that this is a like an organic process of us all climbing on top of each other reaching higher and higher and higher
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, i think that there's no excuse why we shouldn't be able to build a society better than anything that's existed before we have all the resources at our disposal and i i see no excuse why we shouldn't give it our best
0: so in your mind what is the most effective method of speaking out what do you tend to kind of bring up at dinner parties or th- lob out there as kind of truth bombs uh, what's your favorite
1: well i i think it is I don't know that, that I have one favorite one. I think uh, one effective way is questioning, just asking people like, you know, for example, very often in these, uh, you know, like I, I used to participate in these uh, hedge fund, you know, these these analysts' discussions, you know, and then, and, and, you know, like among hedge fund managers and analysts, you find a better, you know, people are better prepared. People are not as susceptible to the to the brainwash. And they have more, uh, let, let's call it, more sophisticated uh, view of the world. But still, you know, I noticed that they would always say, like, um, well, you know, I don't support Vladimir Putin, but, and then they would say something positive. Or they would say, like, well, Putin is a thug, but he has a point on this. So it's it's almost like every time they made a point that wasn't that was, let's say, in favor of Vladimir Putin, they would first have to denounce him to make sure that they're kind of in a in the clear. And then I would ask them, like, okay, so you just said that Vladimir Putin was a thug. Can you tell me why you think so? You know, so what and then, you know, of course, you know, they had nothing other than, you know, the 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 the, the standard mainstream Mm, staple nonsense, but so question is is important. I think it's also very important to try to be as factual and concise as possible. So, you know, for example, rather than saying like, "Oh, you know, this pandemic is all bullshit," saying something concrete and specific about it, because you know anybody can say. Oh, I just don't believe in any of this, it's nonsense. But you didn't contribute anything to the discussion. Rather, rather than that, to, to be able to share with people uh very specific factual information that might be able to alter their views or 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 lead them to question certain assumptions that maybe they had. Um, that I think is very important and and powerful, and uh, you know to uh, to continue to research, question, and analyze things, to try to uncover the truth to the best to the best uh, extent that we can. And I think that you know even if we can't know everything, I think that we can understand things well enough so that. You know if somebody comes to uh, try to manipulate us we will recognize that as manipulation rather than falling into a pitfall and Mm -hmm. and uh
0: are you optimistic or are you seeing signs of hope where you live you're in monaco or are you across the border uh no no i'm in i'm in
1: monaco you're
0: in monaco are you seeing signs of hope there
1: oh absolutely i see signs of hope everywhere Mm-hmm. i see signs of hope in the united states and canada i see signs of hope I, I was i was recently i traveled to canada uh i see signs of hope in croatia you know croatia is another another surprise to me because um let's say that you know croatia is a catholic country and i can say that i pretty much grew up in a culture that's maybe not as uh, russophobic as a uh, poland but you know we yeah, we were always a little bit uh, reticent about Russia, a not like it. But, you know, if I discuss the, the Ukraine war with people in Croatia, I can tell you that probably three out of four people sympathize with the Russian side and not Ukrainian side. And that's very surprising mm. to me because in some ways there are parallels between the war between Russia and Ukraine to the war we had 30 years ago and people at least in the beginning they identified with with the ukrainians as the as the side that was being attacked but you know it took a few weeks or a few months people started working things out and as they realized that well you know as i said they're sympathetic to the russian side and that's almost that was almost a surprising thing for me to, mm-hmm. to find out, so it tells you that people are questioning the narrative that they're doing their own thinking that they're analyzing that they're talking amongst themselves, and that uh, you know the light is the light is breaking in, and people are waking up yeah. so I, I I really do see signs of optimism pretty much everywhere i look
0: so uh, switching gears a little bit because of your industry you you are helping. Um, portfolio advisors or you're advising portfolio managers, where should people be putting their money? Uh, Commodities. Commodities. And how do you do that on a practical level? Um, Uh, Buying portfolios of commodities or uh, explain? I
1: would say say commodities trading advisor. I think that uh, commodities trading advisors. I'll explain uh nobody nobody's qualified enough to be trading gold and silver and copper and wheat and coffee and cocoa and all of these things uh, nobody knows about these markets however you know one thing that i've established over my 25 year career in the uh, commodities markets is 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 uh, two things that are um you know you're not going to hear them on wall street journal or in columbia business school but uh, a large scale price events Are far and away the largest source of risk and the largest source of opportunity for investors. Okay. Mm -hmm. B, large scale price events invariably unfold as trends. Okay. So, you know, it's never from one day to the next, but it always takes time. And so, while you might not know how to trade copper and coffee and all of these things, uh, once you work out how to follow trends, you can. You can invest in any security and simply try to uh, gain the windfalls that these trends are offering you. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one group of, of uh, investment advisors or fund managers that do this systematically are the so-called commodity commodities trading advisors, and I used to be one and so they will typically trade in 30 40 50 up to 100 mm, different financial and commodities markets and they have algorithms with which they systematically um uh try to pick up these trends and to to gain profits from them and you know the reason why I say commodities is because you know we're going in, in into an inflationary period Empirical fact is that exposure to commodity futures is by far the most effective hedge against inflation. And it's consistent with the, uh, you know, with this commodity super cycle uh, scenario, which is widely anticipated and which I believe might be, might even surprise us to the upside because, you know, the world is changing. We're going from, from a continuity of uh, maybe 300 years of one system of governance, which is dominating in the world into a completely different system of governance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that this other system of governance is going to put uh, significant upward pressure
0: on commodity prices. So you feel that the commodities are the best hedge against inflation at this point. And so somehow no,
2: that. that's an empirical fact.
0: Okay. yeah, <laughs> I like your confidence on that. So land, because I also feel as though holding land and just old, holding certain, you know, uh, certain commodities, like precious metals are a good hedge against inflation as well. But you would say better to own just a basket of commodities? Yes. And be uh, diversified. So, uh,
1: okay. Um, so... To 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 be to be concrete, um, historically commodity futures price commodity mm-hmm. futures. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a thing called inflation beta. Okay, mm-hmm. inflation beta manages uh, measures how in commodity price. Inflation beta uh, measures how prices of certain assets change in respect to inflation. Right. So let's say uh, if 1% change in inflation leads to a 1% change in an asset price, then that asset's uh, inflation beta is one. Right. Uh, For commodities, uh, uh, for a diversified basket of commodities, inflation beta is 6.5. Okay, so for every 1% change in inflation, commodity prices change 6.5%. 6.5%. The next most effective, so you were you were correct in the sense that the, the next most effective um, inflation hedge is land, particularly uh, farmland. And I think that the inflation beta for farmland is uh, I think about 2.3. So for every 1% change in inflation, farmland would change uh, I think 2.3% upward. Uh, stocks and bonds, no, uh, bonds are negative. Uh, stocks. It depends. You know, there are there are two different types of inflation. One is you know uh, uh, a slower, more gradual increase in prices, and usually this coincides with uh, with with bear markets in in stocks. But there are there are cases where inflation uh, explodes and unravels in a very short period of time, you know, like in a year or two. And in those environments, stock markets tend to go vertical. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But they trail inflation. So investors in real terms end up losing everything anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, gold and silver definitely, but, you know, it's 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 good to have exposure also to industrial metals, to energy, you know, mm-hmm. oil and gas, to mm-hmm. uh, to agricultural commodities and so forth, because you know, as the purchasing power of your currency deteriorates, the prices of all of these things go up. Mm-hmm. And but they go up in you know, like with different timings. And sometimes you'll have these big run-ups and then big collapses. They they all they always spend months and months, you know. This is not something that happens overnight. Mm-hmm. And so usually, if you have a competent trend follower uh they will be able to ride the, ride these trends in good time in many many different markets and you know generally trend followers have been uh able to generate above average returns on investment for you know for decades you know stretching back to the nineteen seventies It's one of those things that Nobody knows, nobody talks about, because the whole industry is predicated on 60-40 and stocks and bonds and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And if you talk about commodities and trend following, it's it's almost like you came to the health system with the homeopathic remedy. You know, Nobody cares whether it's effective or not. It's just like, that. we don't do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> interesting. So really, that very, very interesting numbers, the inflation betas on commodities versus land. Versus stocks and bonds, that's a very uh, telling story. That inflation beta,
1: it is. And you would you would you would think that more people in the financial markets would know it, but actually they don't. And I, you know, like I spent 15 years in the hedge fund industry, and I can tell you that most investors that I I talk to have absolutely no idea. You know, I I, I think that the whole industry is uh driven by the sell side the brokers uh you know they never tell you to sell a stock they always tell you buy this buy that buy everything buy the dip um and i think that there's a there's a prevalence of groupthink mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and you know when you had when you had 12 years of quantitative easing and the market was giving you you know uh 12 14 a year you 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 practically got used to not thinking. Exactly. You're just like coasting along and like don't yeah don't bother me with things that I need to think hard about. Yes. I've done so well. These people advised me really well. I you know I still there. But
0: I think I think now people are a little bit disenchanted, and you have to work harder to position yourself. It's not an easy yes. route right now. So yes. I agree with you. The stock market, the bond market, to me could be catastrophic in coming days. I agree with you on commodities, but my question is always how best to participate in that. You're, I mean, you're you're managing or you're advising portfolios. Can people participate in what you are involved with or is it only for the big players?
1: Uh, no, 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 no. This the, the, the product we have in the United States, unfortunately, it's only available to American investors. Uh, mm. Or, you know, if you have a US address, then you might be eligible. But it was deliberately made for mom and pop investors. You know, this mm-hmm. this was this was explicitly what I wanted to do, and I, I and my partner in the United States also wanted to do this. Um the uh, the you know if you if you're talking about and so yeah so this this particular product is available Starting from twenty five thousand dollars. hmm. So it's quite um,
0: accessible then. It's uh, quite accessible. But yes. you need to be a U.S. investor or somehow wrangle a U.S. address to participate in this. But yes, I right. I I think that's a very compelling story that commodities that that beta is. No, absolutely. Tremendous.
2: No, no. It, abs- it, it is absolutely. That, it, how
0: many years is that based on? Uh, when you say six five six point five percent inflation beta is that over 50 uh, years 100 years how how far back does this go
1: no 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 not that long i think maybe so this was published by alliance bursting in 2010 Mm. and if i if i remember correctly that he looked at the business uh, you know uh, less than 100 years i would say Mm -hmm. less than 100 years but i would have to look up that paper to tell you exactly but Mm -hmm. it's the the paper, so it was published by Alliance Bernstein in 2010, and I think that the title was a, of the paper was uh, deflating inflation. I I, I think it's uh, floating around on the internet. If not, I'm I'm very happy mm-hmm. to to look it up and send mm-hmm. it to you if you want mm-hmm.
0: to look. very interesting. So that do, is do, uh, so commodities land but you would not really classify the precious metals investing directly in the precious metals you would say maybe oh, not no, i would,
1: i would i would no no absolutely yes absolutely mm-hmm. yes but
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know i investing in precious metals i to you know that that's that's my preference in my opinion but you know it should be done in uh, in physical form
2: yeah
1: and uh, i I also think that there there's a risk that if if you can't touch it you don't own it and you'll only find out when things go wrong. So I think that everybody should have some bullion stored where it's accessible to them. Mm-hmm. I don't I I I don't you know I don't uh, recommend hoarding too much of it because it does have a psychological effect. You know, when you start buying it, you want to start. You, you want to keep buying it. You know, like mm-hmm. when you have a lot, you want to have more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, 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 I did personally bump into this problem, and I thought, like, okay, stop now, enough, because it, it can become an obsession. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that it would be, it should be important for everybody to have enough gold and silver, to, to, uh, to meet emergencies, to be able to meet maybe six months or maybe if you want to be super cautious up to a year of uh, of uh, their household's expenses
2: Mm.
1: but beyond that i wouldn't i wouldn't go beyond that beyond that i would go with uh financial exposure to commodity prices right because you know like you're not going to be buying barrels of oil and bushels of wheat you know it costs to store them they deteriorate you just want to be exposed to their price change to to the price change Mm -hmm. that's all you want to do Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so uh, i i would say that yeah own some bullion but you know for for your for your larger allocation you know don't have a ton of gold in your house or in your in your you know storage because You know, it it, Mm -hmm. it creates other problems and other risks that you might not want to deal with.
0: But I think I think a lot of people are nervous to have any vehicle, you know, for example, the portfolios that you are involved in. People are nervous about that because it's all denominated in a currency that people are nervous about. So there's a lot of. um, How would I say there's a lot of things that could go wrong. You know, yes, the, your your there's your no currency question. basket could perform very well, but the currency itself becomes so devalued and and or disappears, or there's so much risk associated with that investment that yes. I think a lot of people want to have the hard asset, and they can't buy the oil, they can't buy a barrel of oil or have you know they. So I think that's where people are moving towards the precious metals or farmland feeling as though they can touch it they can see it and it's under absolutely. their control
1: no mm-hmm. absolutely i think that everybody if they can if it's if it's realistic should own a plot of farmland
2: mm-hmm.
1: i think that everybody should own some physical gold and silver
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, i think maybe even an allocation to uh bitcoin is not a bad idea but i say all these things as uh, as in it is really important to be diversified.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah.
1: I think that a, a portfolio with appropriate exposure to to a diversified basket of commodity prices should make part of that diversification as well. You know, mm-hmm. so you're right that things can go wrong. And it's not only, not only that. You know, like, let's let's face the problem that your broker might go bust as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all of the. We're not going to find ourselves in a risk risk-free, risk-free world by any magic at mm-hmm, all. So mm-hmm. you know, like we are exposed to risk, but it's also important to keep in mind that at this juncture, you know, at the at the beginning stages of a, of an inflationary process, every investor's most important priority should be to preserve their purchasing power to the greatest extent possible. Mm-hmm. So you know you might not find yourself at the end of the inflationary cycle wealthier than you were in, in before it, but to the extent that you've preserved a good chunk of your purchasing power, something happens after the inflationary period, and this has to be an integral part part of your investment strategy. Right. And they, w- what happens is that at the end of the inflationary uh, cycle, the the prices of real assets tend to be dirt cheap, okay? So just to give you a very concrete example from the Weimar Germany 100 years ago. So uh, Germany had uh, hyperinflation in uh, 1921. And at the end of that cycle, um, you you would have been able to buy the whole of Mercedes-Benz Corporation for the price that was equivalent of 327 of their cars, okay? And I would, I don't know this, but I would bet that they must have had that many cars on their production lot and in their dealerships around Germany. So essentially you could have picked up that company for nothing. Uh, a six bedroom house but at, in, in nice areas of Berlin we're going for a hundred U.S. dollars. So, investors who manage to preserve their purchasing power over what's coming will be facing a buyer's market for for assets, and they'll be able to pick. I'll have that. I'll have that. Yeah. So you know that that should make part of the strategy, like a longer-term vision. You mm-hmm. know we don't we don't need to delude ourselves that we will be able to avoid all risks but you know uh let's say a diversified strategy with a little bit of farm you know a chunk of farmland some gold bullion uh maybe some cryptocurrencies uh, uh an allocation to um to uh to a diversified basket of, of, of currencies. And another thing I have to mention about CTAs, the Commodities Trading Advisors, they do trade financial markets as well. Mm-hmm. And they are they are able to profit from bear markets as well. So if uh, stock markets and bond markets crash, for example, you're able to trade them on the short side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, you generally get make profits from that. And if we have a real bear market, you know, like not the little you know um the little storms in the teapot that we had over the last 40 years you know the real bear markets are what uh what we had in 1929 when you know the the dow jones fell by 86 mm-hmm. percent and uh and it took 26 years to recover and then the same thing happened in japan you know and japan had a big bull market in 1980s and then in at the at the start of the nineteen nineties, it went into a bear market. And over the next twelve years, uh, the Nikkei lost eighty-two percent and it's still never recovered. It's been more than forty years. Nikkei is still below where it was and on thirty-one December nineteen eighty nine. So, you know, uh, trend followers can profit from all of those events. You know, mm-hmm. if you have a if you have a large trend then uh, in, in any market you can benefit from it on the the upside as well as on the downside so that's a i i to my mind that's one of the one of the best allocations um for investors if they if they have a manager who can offer them a managed account you get daily liquidity you have full transparency you know you know exactly what you're invested in mm-hmm. whether you made money that day lost money that way you can pull the plug any day so it's a you know, no no conventional investment advisor will 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 tell you this, but I think it's a it's a very compelling uh, investment strategy.
0: So your portfolio, for example, is fully liquid. You can uh, buy in, United buy United States, out.
1: Uh, I couldn't I couldn't tell you exactly, but the the, the type of portfolio that I used to run uh, until about three years ago, yeah, they were fully liquid. You would use uh, because you're trading futures. Mm-hmm. You're only using cash for margin requirements. Okay. That you know, I don't know if I don't know if you want to get into that, but basically when you when you buy a future contracts for a hundred ounces of gold, you're not paying for that gold. You're just kind of making an advance which covers any potential losses you might have. And that usually tends to be between between two and ten percent, depending on how volatile the market is. Mm-hmm and so you know, i would i would only use about ten percent of cash to to trade the portfolio the ninety percent was was just sitting in cash with the broker mm-hmm. and so that that money is always available for redemption for withdrawals and uh Generally I think it's advisable to fund the portfolio with at least thirty five percent cash because we are in a different environment. Mm-hmm. Markets are more volatile. You need you need a bigger cash cushion to
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: to make sure you don't have a, a margin call or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, generally, you know, if you if you if you fund an account with thirty five percent, you know, you can you can have a million dollar account with three hundred and fifty thousand dollars.
0: Right. But the risk is the margin or potential margin call. Uh, so, could do you mind sharing the returns that you've had over the last few years? How how are things going?
1: Uh, things are going well. Um, the The portfolio that we have in the United States. Well, you know, in in March of in March last year, it was up fifteen percent when the S and P five hundred and the stocks were at the trough. The problem that I that I have with that portfolio is that it's because it's a retail portfolio and it's regulated, uh, you know, at, at the retail level. Uh, we are only able to short uh, nine out of the thirty-one markets that we trade. So there've been a, there's been there's been a number of bear markets in markets that we track that we simply had to sit on the sidelines. Mm. Um, we lost seven percent. For two thousand and twenty-two, mm-hmm. uh, stock market losses were. I think that you know bond markets lost something like thirteen percent, and the stock something like sixteen percent. So it was good. So, so you it fared
2: well. Mm-hmm.
1: No, no, it was it was it was it was good, but it, let's say that a full-on uh, systematic CTA product trading futures. Not, yeah. Another thing is that we can't trade futures. We can only use ETFs as a proxy, mm. so that you know slows it down a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, to and twenty two, a full on CTA portfolio was forty percent 0 gross. So you know that gives you probably about thirty two percent net. Wow. And uh, um, I, I I would say that probably. Many, if most, CTAs had similar results for 2022. It was just a very good year. 21 was a good year. 22 was a good year. This year is miserable because, you know, trend following makes money when there's trends. Trends are about one-third of the time. About two-thirds of the time, you'll have corrections and consolidations. And 2023 so far has been basically completely non-eventful you know oil is what it used to be. oil mm-hmm. is going flat metals are going flat uh, i think only things like cocoa and sugar have trended well this year yen has been excellent but equities treasuries uh, most commodities have been treading water so it's been so far it's been a negative year
0: and because but, you, know, you are because you're a trend analyst if there is no trend there's not much activity for you to participate in.
1: No, actually, there's more activity. Well, let me put it this way: when there are no trends, you're turning a lot because you you, you don't know when the trend is going to come. They don't announce themselves, so you're mm-hmm. always you're constantly positioning yourself for either uh you know a, a rise in prices or a decline in prices, and if it doesn't happen then you know you get stopped out then you take a position again then you get stopped mm-hmm. out again and and mm-hmm. so you you're always making these little losses mm-hmm. until the trend comes along so there's a lot more trend there's a lot more trading when there are no trends mm. once trends uh, unfold you 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 might be sitting in a long position for weeks maybe for months and and nothing changes you're just as one month expires, you roll it into the next month, but that's all. So there's there's much less trading when there are trends.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You never know when that happens. You know, I, yeah. I I always say that trend following is a little bit like commercial fishing. You know, like you you know that sometimes large school of fish pass somewhere. You don't know when or when you have to just go out there cast your nets every day. And mm-hmm. when when you happen upon the the school of fish, you're gonna pull out a full net.
0: But until mm-hmm. then,
1: you just have to work, work, work. It costs you some, you lose some, but uh, that's that's the nature of the game. And yeah. over long stretches of time, it does work. You know, it's not a, um, it's not a, it's not a gimmick. It's a, no. it's a real strategy.
0: No, well, your record, when we talked about it at length last month, uh, your record was very impressive. Showing well, that, that, for- that, that that trend an analyst analysis is serves you well.
1: No, it does. And I, I ran a, um, you know, you can you can you can construct various types of portfolio with trend following strategies. But for a period of years between 2007 and 2013, I ran a very very typical diversified uh, financial and commodities markets portfolio. the, the, the kind that most trend analysts. Um, usually uh, offered to their clients, and I actually outperformed the 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 thing that I used to be tracked. It was called the, the Credit Dow Jones Credit Suisse Blue Chips, which was the top seven CTA uh, hedge funds. And you know the the I must say that okay, so this is what I do. This is my profession. This is my personal conviction, and so forth. So mm-hmm. I'm. You know, I I I want to be careful not to say too much, but I, I am I'm infinitely fascinating because fascinated by this because the only input that goes into these decision investment decisions are asset prices themselves. Mm-hmm. Everything else kind of comes out of the algorithm. So there isn't this like, oh, you know, uh is gonna launch a new iPhone, an iPhone 26, you know, and now you know maybe the stock price goes up or Tesla is going to do that, or, uh, you know, or this oil company is going to benefit because the Saudis are going to do that. So, you know, like there isn't a fundamentals based narrative mm-hmm. that you can attach to it. It's just mm-hmm. an algorithm, but the fact that that algorithm works and that it generates real results to me is, is, is infinitely fascinating. I'm, I have to say, I'm well, I, can't it. I can't believe it myself, but it's real. And it, you know, like, we all intuitively know this because, you know, even 2,000 years ago, Zun Tzu said there are three great avenues of opportunity, events, trends, and conditions. So it means that more than 2,000 years ago, people already recognized trends as something.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it le- it's legitimate. Truth. It is legitimate. And you're it's catching a it. wave. A- and yes. that what, what drives that wave doesn't really matter. There is a wave, and you're on it.
1: What drives it is human psychology.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's the question, and that's the one element of the market that's not about to change very soon. You know, like it's it's mm-hmm. been observed uh, for over a, well, you know, if we take Tzu into account, uh, over two thousand years, but in mm-hmm. in financial markets over so for over a century. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like, sometimes people say, like, yeah, but, you know, like, with all these algorithms and all this electronic and AI and blah, 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 and all this, uh, isn't that going to change all? I I don't know, but apparently it hasn't, you know, because we still have trends. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, we just saw what happened with Bitcoin and with Tesla and with Apple and Microsoft and all of these stocks and with... uh, with the with the with the stock market, uh, and with it with with the treasuries on the way down currently, they're all trends and they all spend months and months and you know, like if you if only you knew, mm-hmm. all you had to do is sail along, you know, take the correct position and sail along, let the trend work for you.
3: Yeah. But yeah, you does. know,
1: it's still it's still a marginal strategy and most uh quote unquote serious professional Dismiss it, you know. They take it for voodoo, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, whatever." You know, tell me the fundamental story so that yep. I have something yep. to, you know, bite into.
0: But the reality is, you're outperforming the fundamental analysts year after year. So oh, yeah. they can oh, they yeah. can dismiss your approach, but in actuality, the algorithms are very powerful. Well, actually, yeah. if you look at if you look at BlackRock, they have that uh, that algorithm it starts with an A, Alec- not Alexa, um, that, that uh, guides their decisions of investing. Uh-huh. And I'm trying I to remember start. the name of their algorithm that they use to make all of their decisions. Uh-huh. That is, their decisions are not made by fundamental analysis either. So I mm-hmm. think that the algorithms trump out any sort of deep assessment um, the,
1: look, uh, uh, the uh, one fantastic advantage of algorithms is that they impose discipline. Yes.
2: Yeah. You know. Yes.
1: You get a buy today. Maybe you don't agree, but that's the that's the decision, and that's what you execute. Mm -hmm. and you know i through my career i've I've, I've executed many decisions that i thought were completely idiotic that didn't make any sense and they ended up being extremely profitable and i also executed a lot of decisions that seemed like ah i was waiting for that that's excellent i love it and then you end up losing money so you really never know so it's better you know the, the 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 secret is that you know like we as, as individual investors, we tend to regard every situation as a departure for, from status quo. So we measure every transaction as something that's either gonna be making us better off or not, not better off. But in reality, what it is, it's a long sequence of transactions,
2: mm-hmm.
1: ultimately. And you know, some of them are gonna be profitable, some of them are gonna be negative, but what matters is how they compound and what you have at the end of the day. And we know, you know, another empirical fact is that most active investment managers, professional investors underperform over longer stretches of time, as many as 95, 95% of them underperform. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the odds the odds of you getting it right more than you get it wrong are not great whereas with an algorithm is if you have a if you have a good strategy and the algorithm is not faulty then you know you you have practically a lifetime strategy that you can you can implement and just um, you know drive it forward for as long as necessary
0: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: well i'll put in the show notes um information about your fund so that people want to reach out and participate no, no, there, in
1: there's no fund that the, there is no fund at the moment there's a oh, there's- there's a uh, uh, turnkey portfolio solutions and there's daily investment uh, daily investment support and then yeah sorry for for american audience if 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 people happen to be uh us persons or have a us address then yeah there is a there is an investment product that they can that they can look at
0: okay so two choices if you're american you can slip into some funds that are managed by you but if you're not American, no,
1: I, mean, I, I, no I, I have to be precise about this. I'm the investment advisor. I don't manage the fund. I don't execute any buy sell decision. I just, I'm, I'm, i I'm, I'm the designer. I've designed the portfolio, and I provide the daily decision support. You know what we buy, what we sell, when we buy it, when okay. we sell it. But I don't, I don't execute any transactions, so I'm not the manager. That's, yeah, you know, that's a-
0: okay. So that, so if someone wants to participate. With you in some sort of way, they think I like I trust Alex Craner. I like that style. I believe in this model. How can they best participate in having you direct?
1: Well, they the they company? can reach out to me or they can go to the website of uh, well I have a website called I System Trend Following, and there is somewhere a link for U.S. investors, and then that link provides some basic information. There's a video uh, where I had a, like a one-hour conversation with the with the principal of uh, this company called Capital Investment Advisors, which are based in uh, Malibu, I think. No, not in Malibu, Long Beach, California.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: then there's a link to their company, and so they can follow that link, reach out to them. Uh, they can probably give them a lot more uh, uh, granular information about exactly uh, you know how to invest and uh, uh, the, the the structure of the product i i limit myself to you know designing the portfolio management process and then uh, generating the day-to-day <clears throat> investment decisions
0: okay okay so people can't really usually have a direct access to you you're advising the portfolio managers no no
1: no no they they, they can I, if anybody reaches out and wants to ask me any questions, I'm very happy to reply to them, but uh, I wouldn't be receiving any investor funds
0: right 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 That's, mm-hmm. but they no. can subscribe to your newsletter and oh, if yes, they, they if they're yeah, quite yeah. sophisticated and want to be managing your own portfolio you if you subscribe yes. to your newsletter, you could be actively managing your own portfolio. Under your okay. guidance, not yeah, guidance,
1: absolutely. But, yeah, mm. absolutely. They can subscribe to my newsletter, and one month is always free of charge. So you know, um, that allows people to get used to it. Uh, I always write uh, a few paragraphs, providing some you know analysis and explanations and uh, and so forth. So if anybody, you know, like for anybody who thinks that they might that, that they are comfortable managing their own money doing their own executing their own trades then yeah they can uh, I can provide that service for them as well
0: okay okay that that might be more interesting to people um now I don't know whether <laughs> we should launch into this I find it personally interesting just because I read the book and I met but Bill Browder and his book red notice you wrote a scathing uh exposé on, well, really exposing the lie um, called The Grand Deception, which was then banned by Amazon and and pretty much everywhere else. But uh, apparently it's, I haven't read it, but I I hear it's a fascinating read. Should we quickly have a, a discussion about the Bill Browder deception?
1: Well, I think that Bill Browder is not a household name, so maybe I'll just introduce him. Mm -hmm. Bill Browder used to own the largest foreign-owned investment fund in uh, Russia during the 1990s, while Russia was going through their, quote-unquote, transition from communism to capitalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he was very successful for a time, and then he ended up, in 2005, he ended up kicked out of Russia. Um, And then he became uh, an incredibly prolific activist against Russia and Putin. And so he was the man who lobbied through the US Congress in December of 2012 the so-called Magnitsky Act. And Magnitsky Act is uh, ostensibly a piece of human rights legislation that enables uh, the u.s now have to be specific about this enables the the u the american government to sanctions individuals if it finds them uh like in breach of human rights or they abused some you know whatever but the the, 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 the act itself is an abomination to the Western legal transition, t- tradition because it, there, there is no due process associated with this act. So the law provides that an unnamed bureaucrat at the United States uh, Department of the Treasury, at their discretion, can put any individual or company on the Magnitsky list. And this person will be sanctioned they will probably not be able to obtain a visa to travel to the united states all of their u.s assets might be frozen and uh, uh, confiscated and and so on and so forth you know like there's that there's the, the, there's a whole series of consequences that might happen to a person that when they're put on the magnitsky list there is no recourse once they put you on the list it's extremely difficult to get yourself on the list nobody Proved uh, your guilt of any sort, so there's no innocence to prove either. And uh, uh, more more ominously, this act is considered considered as the opening salvo in the new cold war between Russia and the United States. The only problem with uh, Bill Browder's narrative that he uh, you know gave to the U.S. Congress to to be able to get this act passed, is that the whole thing was a fraud? It was a lie. The whole narrative that he sold to the U.S. Congress was simply a lie. And I, you know, I I, I bumped into uh, Bill Browder on two occasions in my life. I met him uh, both times in Monaco. I knew a little bit about his story. He was, in fact, the man who got me interested in, you know, paying attention to affairs. Around Russia, because he was the first person I ever heard say anything positive about Vladimir Putin, and that took me aback. Because you know, like as I told you, I come from Croatia, a bit of a Russophobic uh, culture. It wasn't difficult for me to believe that Vladimir Putin was everything that the Western media portrayed him as. Mm-hmm. And so, good enough for me. I didn't, I didn't see anything uh, suspicious about it until uh, Bill Browder's presentation. Uh, here in monaco and then i was really taken aback and i thought like well how come nobody ever mentions this in the western media and what he was saying is that you know like his investment uh, strategy was buying shares in corrupt companies and the corruption would um, have the effect of depressing the share prices of these companies because the managers were stealing money from the company selling products and assets for their own accounts and so forth. So his team would investigate the corruption. And then when they had the when they when they completed the investigation, they would uh to the Russian media and to foreign financial media and so forth. And then in every case, Vladimir Putin's government would step in, they would, you know, change the laws, they would close the legal loopholes, they would fire the corrupt management and replace it and so forth. So every time they cleaned up, and I my impression was that Vladimir Putin was the enabler of cor- corruption and the protector of the oligarchs in, in Russia. So I thought, like, well, why does everybody hate Putin in the West if he's actually fighting corruption in Russia? So I, that, that's when I started to pay attention. But Bill Browder changed this story. And uh, then in 2015, uh, he published a book called Red Notice, And uh, my ex-wife gave me a copy, and he said, said like, oh, this is a fantastic book, you have to read this. So I did, and really is a good book, except that the whole thing is a lie. It's a big, you know, it's the same, that book is the same narrative as what he sold to the U.S. Congress. And uh, when I read the book, I realized it's not just Bill Browder. There's, like, a very powerful network backing him. He's just the front man. And this powerful network is actually pushing us towards World War III, like the conflict between Russia and and the West, the United States and NATO. And I thought, well, somebody has to unmask these people. Somebody has to expose this. And then, you know, I was going through my divorce. It it seemed like a sanity project for me, and uh, I thought, well, I probably know more about this than the average person, so I thought it may as well be me. So I started writing the book, and I wrote it, and I self-published it on Amazon. And so it sat there for about five weeks, and then Amazon received a letter from a man who was, a, who was a, his name was Jonathan, and his name is Jonathan Weiner. He was an advisor to... Uh, John Kerry, while well, he was the Secretary of State, and they they basically asked Amazon to remove this book, and Amazon complied, no questions asked. So that was that.
0: Hmm. So, in a nutshell, I, what what did you expose here? What I mean, for one thing, you think it's been ghostwritten, yeah,
1: but the I story think has a yeah Mm -hmm. i believe that it was ghostwritten by lee child it's it's a devilishly well written book uh and that's why it's it's very effective at selling his fraud because it really you know i i i I, I analyzed how it was written and uh it, it kind of disarms you every time it sells you something that you wouldn't you wouldn't buy from used card salesman but it's it's packaged really well um well basically in the first two chapters of my book i pretty much debunked the whole of bill browder's narrative in his own words because the book itself you know when you when you when you dig beyond the you know like if you read it just as a thriller it flows nicely and you just go from you know this to that and you don't notice the the, the the small, the small details. But when you read it very carefully, you realize that a lot of those small details don't add up at all. And so the I, in, in the first two chapters, I basically uh, draw attention to all those incoherences.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I show them that beyond the shadow of doubt, he's not telling the truth. But then I also research deeper into some of the you know claims that he made and i looked into what was this transition from communism to capitalism that took place in russia and it's quite a spectacular story and uh, so that's one of the one of the chapters and there was a there's a chapter about the role uh and and presidency of vladimir putin and what effect that had and who who this man is because you know he's been demonized to no end in the Western mm-hmm. media. There's there's there, there's virtually no stories that can be printed anywhere in the Western media that are that are even halfway fair.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. So I I, I I kind of looked into that. Uh. You know testimonies not 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 only his role as president but also testimonies for people from people who knew him personally who dealt with him who. Uh, who knew him when he was just a, you know, assistant to the mayor of St. Petersburg and so on. And so the picture that emerges is very, very different from what we think we know. And then I also researched uh, quite a bit into into Russian uh, into the into the deeper historical context of the relationships between the United States and Russia. And i discovered that russia played a major role in the u.s in the in the united states civil war and that without the russian intervention abraham lincoln probably would have been defeated and the united states as it is today as a union would not exist mm. quite quite possibly and so uh, you know i i wrote my book i put all that in there i uh I also wrote about why I think all of all of these things were important and that there was a risk that this cabal was dragging us into World War Three. And uh, I must have hit a wire on something because, you know, they banned it and then they banned it twice because then there was a company a publisher that contacted me called Red Pill Press. And they offered to, you know, to to publish the book under their own uh, brand. And they did. They spent nine months combing through everything everything I wrote to make sure that there's nothing that could be sued for, and that everything is exactly backed up with uh, sources. We even changed the title because the original title was uh, "The Killing of William Browder." So we thought that eh, maybe maybe the title is. A the offending part also so let's change it so we call it the grand deception
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so they published it 6 weeks later it was banned again and so obviously whatever's in it they are keen that people don't know about it they don't read it they don't see it they don't you know
0: so this book where can people get a pdf or how, how can people access it uh can you can you it's, provide me a link that I could put in yeah, the show? Yeah, I
1: can provide you a link. I can provide you a link. It's available from the pages of Red Pill Press. Uh, but you know, they are they do their own fulfillment and for some people, you know, depending on where you live, uh, the price of the book plus shipping can be quite pricey. So, you know, like some mm. people contact with me and they said, like, oh my god, you know, like uh and and i i always tell people i if 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 anybody requests a copy in pdf i'm always very happy to share it free of charge i i did not write that book uh, for for many reasons i wrote it because i wanted to mm. you know i wanted to add my voice to preserving peace mm mm-hmm. And so, for that reason, I, I think it's important that as many people as possible understand the the risks to peace that are uh, that are coming from this cabal, and uh, I'm very happy to share that uh, free of charge.
0: Okay, so essentially, the people behind Bill Browder, because you mentioned to me you think he's either CIA or MI six, but you think CIA, the people behind no, I him.
1: Thought, I thought I thought he was CIA. I, I thought he was MI six. But somebody from Russia contacted me by email a few years ago and they said, like, look, I know everything about this. He's he's CIA. We know that for sure.
0: Okay, so we don't know. (laughs) But but their their intention in this book being published and then the movie. I mean, I think Tom Hanks is in the movie. The the this whole uh, story, this whole narrative, the purpose is what? They want, ah, so, they want to villainize Russia? Or what, what's the intention here?
1: Among other things, but there's, here's, here's the, here's the, the intent of, of the Magnitsky legislation. The, uh, this transition uh, from communism to capitalism in Russia was one massive pirate raid on Russia by uh, the Western financial elites.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: uh the estimate is that anything between uh 200 and 600 billion worth of russian uh assets have been stolen through uh offshore uh banking offshore financial centers and that's a, that's a very conservative estimate because we're talking mm-hmm. about book value of enterprises and resources we're not talking about market cap of mm-hmm. of companies this is this is a massive amount of money so uh, you know, when Vladimir Putin came to power, uh, there were there were already hundreds of investigations in 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 process in 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 the Russian government that were started by you know Russian police and secret services and uh, you know Yevgeny Primakov was I think partly in charge of that, uh, and so the, the procedure would be. Normally, the procedure would be for for Russian government officials or lawyers appointed by the by the Russian government to file cases in Western jurisdictions like London, like uh, like like uh, the United States, like uh, Cyprus, Cayman Islands, uh, British Virgin Islands, all of these financial centers through which all these assets were laundered, and to begin to uh, depose. Uh, People who were involved, witnesses, uh, to start to start the whole discovery process,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the the objective of the Magnitsky Act was to erect a barrier between any Russian that they put on that Magnitsky list and Western jurisdictions, so that Russians would have no access to lawyers in London, to London courts, to New York courts. And you know, a person who would bring a case in any Western jurisdictions, if they're on the Magnitsky list, if they're the sanctioned a sanctioned individual, they instantly lose legitimacy as well. Mm-hmm. You know, in addition to not being able to travel, in addition to not being able to uh, um, to uh, to interview um, witnesses uh, and, and so forth so that was that was the objective of the Magnitsky legislation, and once it was enacted in the United States, then Bill Browder carried on and he went to Canada and the European Union and Australia and New Zealand and Cyprus and everywhere they tried to they tried to bring this legislation about hmm. everywhere in all the key Western jurisdiction, always pretending that what they cared about was human rights. We need to sanction those human, right, those human rights abusers from Russia. That's that's the narrative. It's completely false. It's 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 actually farcically false.
0: So it's 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 it's, it's a, an attempt to not only freeze their assets but kind of chop these characters off at the knees, and they lose all credibility, all yeah, forms of to... recourse. They 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 are. Incapacitated in every form.
1: It's to uh, yeah. The purpose is to put all, all the stolen assets that were taken from Russia beyond the reach of Russian investigations, mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know, they would probably petition petition for restitutions. You know, like if you because the the the, the transition process was corrupt and dirty beyond imagination. It's it, it's 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 simply. Incredible how how corrupt this process was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was managed by uh, you mentioned Jeffrey Sachs, but I wouldn't I wouldn't smear him with this one. I think that he he was involved, but of of all the people involved, he is the one who tried to. Uh, try, and I I don't know Jeffrey Sachs. I'm not on any kind of friendly terms with him. I'm not that this is not what I'm saying. This is just the outcome of my research. He, he was the only person who apparently acted with integrity and and uh, and in good faith uh, he tried to steer the, the process in a in the right direction and then eventually he he, he resigned from 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 that uh from that assignment
2: hmm.
1: but uh you know people like anders aslund David Lipton and you know like there were there were literally thousands, thousands of people there with Ersten Young, with world Bank IMF um, uh, Harvard Institute for International development um, thousands of Western it was it was really a feeding frenzy on on Russian wealth
0: and it's been effective to this day. it oh, has not yes. been challenged.
1: Yes, well, you know, uh, but as as Otto von Bismarck said, you know, when you're dealing with Russians, deal honestly or or don't deal at all. They 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 come for their due, if it takes them a hundred years.
2: Hmm.
0: So you mentioned as well uh, a recent documentary they were making about Bill Browder that went sideways. Oh. Do you want to just br- briefly explain that? I found this uh, so- to be fascinating.
1: So this is this is the film called The Magnitsky Act Behind the Scenes. Mm -hmm. It was uh, made by Andrei Nekrasov, who used to be. uh, You know, he used to be one of the the great uh, Vladimir Putin critics who was living in the West, who was on friendly terms with all this Russian uh, dissenters and critics and diaspora in London and, and in Germany. And so he made a few anti-Putin documentaries. And so Bill Browder, uh, I think, the Bill Browder commissioned him to make a documentary about his case. Oh. And uh, Andrei Krasov accepted, so he began to make this film. But as he was shooting the scenes and you know putting the film together. Um, you know, some things didn't quite make sense. It didn't add up. They were not able to film correctly in some in some cases, and so it' you was know, like, hmm. you know, example, you know, uh, Vlad, uh, Bill Browder's accountant, Sergei Magnitsky, was, according to Bill Browder's account, beat to death by nine Russian uh, special police in full riot gear, and so andrei nekrasov went to that prison and tried to film that scene in the cell where uh sergey magnitsky was you know andre nekrasov is a, is a professional filmmaker you know um he tried to film that scene and then he realized there's no way like this it, you can you can you can fit three or four people in this cell but there's no way that you can fit one guy being beat up and another nine police officers with batons. Nobody could move. They would be like packed in there like sardines. So he was like, how are they able to beat the all nine us? Yeah. So anyway, he's filming all this. And then they go back to London and he asks Bill Braders for a meeting and then he starts asking, well, you know, like we tried to film this, it didn't quite work. What about this? And what about this? And what about this? And you could they're filming all this, right? And you can see that Bill Browder is fidgety, he can't really give any straight answers. And then at some point he loses his cool and he stands up and he says like, you are uh, here spreading Vladimir Putin's talking point, it's not gonna go well for you. And he storms out, right? So that was that. So what happened in the end is that, you know, Andrew Nekrasov continued to to complete his documentary, except Now he became also the investigator. So instead of going by Bill Browder's script, he went and investigated all those things that he was questioning. He he reached radically different conclusions, and so to the conclusion that Bill Browder is a fraud, that his narrative was was a lie, and that his story was was false. And and then you know like when he made the film again, Bill Browder and the people behind him tried in everywhere possible to ban the film to uh every time they had a screening they 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 tried to uh, um uh, to block it to cancel it to um to make sure that people didn't see it and they managed in in european parliament they managed i think in the council of europe but they did not manage in new york at the I was some kind of a New York free Press museum. I don't know what it's called mm-hmm. exactly, but it was uh i think it was um, it was Seymour Hirsch who uh who organized the screening oh. and then the director yeah yeah, and then the director of museum refused to to cancel the screening. He was like, No, no, this is a museum of free press we are <laughs> we stand up for free expression, and this film will be screened And so a lot of people did see it. And I think that the film is so compelling, it leaves you no doubt that Bill Browder is a fraud.
0: So who else has written about this? Okay, this documentary was made. Seymour Hirsch then stood in defense of it. Have other people started to write about the fraud?
1: Well, uh, there was a, a, you know, there's there's an investigative uh, journalist. uh, her, Her name is Lucy Commissar, who was on bill browder's case before i ever uh wrote my book and she is very you know her accounts are very grand. you know she didn't publish a book but she she wrote many uh articles uh analyzing his investments and transactions in small detail mm. you know exposing the way he worked which is not at all what he's selling himself for Mm -hmm. And then there's also uh, uh, an excellent investigative researcher, a a journalist. uh, uh, His name is Lee Stranahan. He used to be with Breitbart. And then he is now, now I think he's with Sputnik Radio. He was also uh, featured in Oliver Stone's um, Ukraine on Fire.
3: Ah. He just gives
1: this, you know, really compelling granular detailed account of you know so that would be that would be the individuals that come off the top of my head who have been on to Bill Browder but yeah
0: so you're not alone and it sounds to me like the group is growing if you've got people like Oliver Stone you've got Lucy Karmason you have what is the name of the documentary the
1: uh, I think it's called the Magnitsky Act behind the scenes. You know, okay. like a maybe semicolon, maybe dash. Uh, I don't know. Behind Magnitsky Act behind the scenes. scenes. Yeah.
0: Okay. That that sounds like it would be a very fascinating watch. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm glad I'm glad that this this deception or this fraud has been exposed, but it has been very effective in garnering that sort of animosity. Which yeah, you yeah, you yeah. fear was, is fueling, you know, you fear this is fueling a war. Ultimately, this is what the powers that be would love to see. They love war. yes,
1: this is, but but you know, like on the on the on the on the positive note, uh, nothing quite worked out the, the way they intended. You know, uh, Bill Browder was meant to be built up into this hero, crusaders for human rights and anti-corruption struggle uh that didn't work out mm-hmm. uh, the war against russia didn't work out the way they intended it at all it was meant to be it was meant to be a, a clash between two sides you know it was not meant to be only a war by proxy against ukraine it was meant to be unified west the nato and ukraine against russia it didn't work out that way
2: mm. so
1: you know like they they lost. Uh, they lost the war in Ukraine. They the Bill Browder's credibility has pretty much disintegrated completely. I, I think mm-hmm. that. I think that the only people who still believe Bill Browder are people maybe who read the Red Notice, and who read it as a thriller, mm-hmm. and maybe you know if you just read the story, they say like ah, this is a good guy fighting the bad guys yeah. and he wins in the end. Wonderful but if you didn't pay attention to the details then maybe you're left with that impression but if you if you actually thought through about many of the details he he, he shares in that book then you realize that there's no no way this is like this is this is so uh, so impossible to believe that i think that the ranks of people who actually believe him are uh, are, are dwindling
0: and that might so the be whole... why he's quite quiet now I don't hear Bill Browder being interviewed anywhere. He's grown very gets silent.
1: Invited to, yeah, yeah. He gets invited to some interviews here and there, but I think that I think that it's quite obvious that he's not at all what he sells himself for because, mm-hmm. you know, even if you look at his statements, it's always Russophobia, it's always against Putin. It's all demonizing Russia and Putin. It has, you know, he pretends that he's about human rights and justice for Sega Magnitsky and anti-corruption, but he never really actually talks about that. And his actions are not at all um, consistent with this with this image. Mm-hmm. His actions are only like, "Let's go kill Russia." Uh, th- that's it, you know.
0: It's very one-dimensional, but yeah. he had he had a purpose or or. <laughs> The story had a purpose,
1: but yeah, yeah. The story it, it, had a purpose. It accomplished its purpose, but I think yeah. that it will, you know, the success will prove short-lived. Mm-hmm. You no, know, in, in historical terms, it's been mm-hmm. it's been eleven years since they passed the Magnitsky Act, almost. But uh, you know, ultimately, I think uh, it's not going to have a future because, as I said, it's a the, the 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 act in itself is an abomination and it shouldn't be on any western nation's books
0: but no no countries have reversed the McGinsky act or the version that they because in the UK they call it something no. else but every country that implemented this law no th- there haven't been any countries that have N- uh,
1: none that i know it. Of, none that i know of but in some countries it simply didn't pass you know the yeah. the legislature didn't buy it
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I think in Australia, it didn't buy. It's, there's a there's a great guy on on Twitter. His name is uh, Brett Harris. He has been instrumental in preventing Magnitsky legislation from passing in Australia, and it's been it's been essentially a one man struggle. You know, like one ordinary man struggle against the tide. But he's been um, tweeting, researching speaking out relentlessly and again there you go that magic Mm -hmm. of speaking out when it matters
0: yes and i think
1: that he managed to well or at least he his his little contribution helped Mm -hmm. to make sure that the magnitsky act didn't pass in australia
0: wow so you're you gotta you you certainly took the initiative wrote the grand deception which really maybe got the ball rolling. You might've been the first to to relay this story and it sounds like others no. have taken, no.
1: No, no, the first one was Andre Nekrasov with his film, but I only, I only oh. became-
0: Oh, okay, so yeah, that documentary yeah. came before you. Mm.
1: Before my book, yeah, yeah and, I, and I only became aware of the film uh, when I practically already finished the book, in fact, you know i once mm-hmm. i saw the film i went back and uh, i inserted some of the details from the film into my book but the film was there before my book
2: i oh, I, I just okay. wasn't even
1: aware of it and then later i i, I met andre nekrasov and we we, we we discussed this and
2: uh
1: <clears throat> yeah i think we all learned a lot more since but you know it's 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 one of those things. It's done. It's finished. It's uh, you know that that whole story lost its legs, and uh, we mm-hmm. can move on.
0: Excellent. Well, you know, Alice Craner, this has been very interesting to chat with you, and I know it's getting late for you. You're <laughs> probably in the middle of the night now, so uh, oh, it's I. Past midnight. That was yes, yeah. Since, that, that it was is past flies, midnight for me. you, and I'm sure you've <laughs> got to be up in the wee hours of the morning, providing yes, all yes. sorts of intel. To these portfolio managers. So, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It, it's been a real pleasure. So interesting. Thank you. And thank uh, you for having
1: me. It was a privilege.
0: And I'll keep an eye on your Substack because you were always, I mean, you, well, just in the last few days, you were writing about the banks unbanking people. And I wanted to get to that topic because it's massively important. Do you have any quick comment on that whole issue of how internationally banks are unbanking people it's it's we're witnessing it here in canada um it's absolutely unacceptable but it is happening at an increasing rate do you have any comment
1: oh yeah absolutely banks are the enemy i think that we've been warned more than 100 years ago by lord acton who said that the issue that has swept through centuries and that will have to be fought sooner or later is people versus the banks uh you know they are they are being increasingly abusive they're being increasingly bossing bossy uh you know the people bailed them out in 2008 after their reckless uh gambling and now they're repaying the people by acting like absolute tyrants and uh so uh this is this fight people versus the bank is probably our fight today and uh, we we need to not only uh, make the bankers serve the people we need to completely overhaul the monetary system and come up with honest money and an honest credit system rather than fraudulent money and fraudulent credit system that poisons all relations in society and who gives to, and which gives disproportionate power to the people who then use it to make our lives miserable, willingly, you know, for whatever reason, you know, like they cancel your bank account. Oh well, you know, we don't need any explanation because who can? We can, that's it. Well, we have to make sure that they that, that they can't.
0: On a practical level, then, how do we avoid this problem? Because we, need a new monetary
2: system. we do. We need a new monetary system. Yes. Who
0: who is spearheading a new model? you don't like the fractional reserve system. It's no. it's ridden with corruption. Well the whole model is is absolutely corrupt. But who is modeling or spearheading a new model? Who who's at the helm of maybe a movement towards a different model of banking?
1: Well, I I think many people but I think that the people who got farthest with it and who have been most uh, focused on exactly this problem matter and uh, designing uh, a solution are the Russians, and in particular, Serge- Sergei Glazyev.
0: I know, uh, fill and
1: me Serge- in. Sergei Glazyev. Sergei Glazyev is a Russian economist. He used to work as Vladimir Putin's uh, advisor. I think that at the moment, maybe he's a minister uh, in Russian cabinet, maybe minister of the economy i'm not sure entirely what his, his role is now but he has been uh managing a research institution that was exactly analyzing monetary matters and trying to work out a different monetary system for for russia and for for the world and i think that they are on track on 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 doing that of of doing that of of implementing something and so uh, yeah um,
0: well, in a nutshell, so this that perhaps Russia will launch this new model within their country. Is this uh, is this on the table in Russia to adopt a new uh, model?
1: I, I don't know that. I think so, but I don't know it. I don't. I don't really know it. I and, do and, know that you know, like it's uh, if Sergey Glazev is not a household name, Sergey Glazev is a great admirer of Lyndon LaRouche. That might ring a bell. You know, and Lyndon LaRouche is another one of those people who uh, who got very, very unfairly demonized. Uh, he used to, you know, he, he ran for president, I think, twice in the United States. So he was a prominent person. But because he, he, his ideas were such a threat to the oligarchy, they unleashed Robert Mueller on him. And he ended up serving a prison term, and he he got very badly demonized in the U.S. media. So you know, when you mention the name Lyndon LaRouche, people think like, "Oh, is that is that some kind of a very extreme far right uh, extremists?" Which is not at all the case, but you know, that's that's the impression that the media has created about him. And I remember when I was a university student, I ended up reading something by Lyndon LaRouche and I thought like, oh well, that's very interesting. And then people told me, Oh, Lyndon LaRouche, no, 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 don't go there. He that's terrible. He's like uh neo-Nazi extreme right. And you know, it worked. I was like, Oh, okay, good to know.
0: So could you write a substack on it on this?
1: I could. But I'm I you know like I have a have a slightly more ambitious, ambitious objective. You know, I want to I want to actually write a whole book about uh, about monetary matters and you know where it went off the rails and how we can write it.
0: Oh, so that I'm, would be very, very interesting reading at this juncture. Because we yeah. can complain and whine, but if we no, don't we have a good to... alternative, we need to be Proactive.
1: We we absolutely need solutions. We need alternative and solutions. And you know, like as the as the World Economic Forum people say, they're not wrong in this. We need to reimagine and reinvent the future. That is absolutely true. Only, you know, not the way they want it, but the way we want it.
0: The way that
1: we want so it. What, what, mm-hmm. Let's let's put it this way. We need to reimagine and reinvent the future that we would want for our children and for their children.
0: And so in a nutshell, in designing a solution in a banking, a new banking model, what is the if you were to distill it down to one thing, okay. what are you doing differently in that bank? Uh
1: here here's here's how I would try to explain it, uh Marianne. It's we first have to understand what money is and what credit is and where it comes from. That is, where it should come from and where it shouldn't come from. So okay so let's uh let's go way back before there was money so let's imagine let's imagine a nomadic tribe let's imagine that we're living in nomadic communities in which pretty much every member of the tribe is employed in providing sustenance for the community maybe the the most elderly people and the babies don't work but pretty much everybody else works <clears throat> then at some point we invent agriculture and we settle down and with the help of agriculture we have surplus so now not everybody has to work because we have surplus so now we can consider using that surplus uh to do something else other than you know just just producing food And so we can say like, okay, maybe a squad of men can go and build a dam or a bridge. And then we can use that bridge to cross over and maybe uh, cultivate the the fields that are across the river. And so because we have that surplus, we could say, okay, uh, this squad of men doesn't need to work the fields, they can go build a bridge. And uh, they're gonna be provided their families, their household, would be provided out of the social surplus that we have created because we have it, right? Mm-hmm. And then maybe we invent some kind of tokens where every, every worker would get entitled to so much wheat and oil and you know whatever they need. And so we maybe tokenize this surplus, and now we have some kind of money, but that money is related to the actual surplus that the society has. Mm-hmm. The, you could say the community's social saving. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then when we build a bridge and we cultivate the fields uh, across the river, then maybe we're even more productive and we have even more surplus. And now we can uh, open, uh, you know, like, I don't know, we could build a university, a library, we could build a temple, a pyramid, I don't know what, you know, but obviously, first thing that emerges is that How we are going to allocate that social surplus has to be a political decision, and it has to be up to the people living in the community. Because you know, like we can, we can build a school, a hospital, we can have beautifully manicured parks, or we can build a control matrix where everybody's going to have a QR code and somebody's going to be giving permits where you can buy, where you can sell, where you can go, where you're not allowed to go, and so forth and it's also important to point out that we the the tokens the money that we use have to correspond to the social savings because if they don't then you're conjuring purchasing power out of thin air and that purchasing power is essentially stolen because if you if you create extra tokens that are more than what you actually have in that social surplus, then somebody's gonna be able to obtain purchasing power which is actually fraudulent. And so anything they buy with it is actually stolen goods. So there has to be effective control of how we issue credit against what and for what purpose and that has to be democratized and so you know here we come to the modern monetary theory which is which has earned itself a bad name but there is actually a um, there is actually a justifiable argument to be made that social surplus which is real you know like we 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 create a surplus of everything that we need. We have we we are so productive today that we can make more cars than we need and more food than we need and more everything that we need. So we create a surplus. Now, it is entirely legitimate to say that this surplus should be distributed to the whole community that produced it. And then that purchasing power will be disposed of in whatever way they like. So rather than giving subsidies to the big ag or to the big pharma, you let the people decide how they're gonna spend money. And then you can also say that like, okay, well, you're not gonna buy 10 kilos of bread now and eight gallons of milk every day. There's there's a limit to how much you can spend. Then you can, uh, you know, today we have the technology where we can um let's call it we can put investments online you know you can you know if somebody has the next investment you know like so we build a bridge we build the railroad we have the ports and the airports and everything but you know there's always entrepreneurial spirit spirit in the community so let's say that there are some guys who want to start a new clothes company a new brand all right uh Petition to crowdfund it from the community, and so like now I can use part of my social surplus instead of for consumption, I can buy uh shares in the in the in the new project right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that would be that's not exactly credit but that's a equity financing but we could conceivably also create types of credit where let's say we know that a certain project like for example when erie canal was built it reduced the the cost of uh, it reduced the cost of trade between the 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 east coast of the united states and the and the and the great lakes by 90% so with some of these let's say very large infrastructure project we can reasonably estimate that it's going to lower the the cost of doing business that is going to enable this and that. So we can project like, okay, so this is going to increase our wealth, our infrastructure, and our social credit and and social savings, whatever, uh, by a certain amount, and we can already, we we can create credit against this. So it's not equity, it's credit. But, you know, given that we have the internet today, We already have crowdfunding platforms, so this has been this technology has been invented. We can build this together and put it put it together in a way that it serves society, and so that those tokens that we use, that money that we use, is actually uh, not fraudulent purchasing power conjured out of thin air that allows somebody to steal wealth from the community, but that it actually reflects the real assets, the real social savings that already exist, or future, um, future wealth that will credibly be built, and so that the money that circulates is actually completely backed up with real assets. It doesn't have to be gold. It can be collective social savings and social surplus that we own, it can also reflect the, you know, the infrastructures that's enabling the, the the our community to be more productive and wealthier and so forth. So I think that this is conceivably possible, and I think that it's possible also in practice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a system. Systems need to be meticulously designed. They need to be very thoroughly thought through. But, you know, look at this. We can we can connect with smart people smart people all, all across the world. We can share knowledge. We can share resources. We can share solutions. And I think there's no reason to think that this cannot
0: be done. It's a very it's a completely different model of banking. It is
1: and believe it or not, you're the first person that I'm sharing this with because I I haven't you know, I, I, w- I will be I will be able to digest it all once, you know, like when you write things down, then you also yeah. uh, you
0: process, you pro but you there process. there's a there's a direct link between the value of money and kind of production behind it. Yes. So there is yes. that it, link
1: money has to represent something. It can't yes. be just purchasing power conjured out of thin air. No. Uh, that then you get to spend, but you know. Because eventually money chases out the real stuff. You know, you can you can print all the money that you were and then you notice that you have inflation and that same money buys less and less stuff because the stuff is finite. There's, exactly. there's lot lots of it. We're we are we are staggeringly productive. We're we're producing these insane surpluses of everything. You know, like there's like hundreds of thousands of cars rusting on lots because they were produced, they weren't needed. This is all Uh, flawed messaging in the system
0: of scarcity Mm -hmm. why not
1: why not instead of producing more junk that we don't need why not spend money on beautiful things that make life worth living why not fund uh, art and music why not instead of having massive amounts of food one third of it goes to waste, why not produce super delicious food so that every glass of wine you ever drink is not cheap junk, but is sublime.
2: Mm-hmm. That every
1: Thank strawberry you. you put in your mouth is full of flavor and every tomato you put on the table for your kids is, is you know, one, why not live life to the maximum of quality that it can be rather than, you know, what, 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 uh, you will know, Harari says, like, uh, we could, we try to keep people busy with drugs and uh, and entertainment, of, and video games.
3: Yeah,
1: Isn't Distract, a we have dist- one, we distracted, distracted.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Why shouldn't
1: every day? Why shouldn't every single day on this earth be an absolute adventure and an absolute miracle? Why should it be anything else? And I think that money as a concept is that powerful that it can it can turn this dystopia into something that's enjoyable and beautiful beyond our imagination today. So you know that's that's mm-hmm. writing writing that out is the task that I, I, I set Wow, it
0: it's so um, diametrically opposed to what we have currently.
1: Yes. It's yes. modeled
0: on a different um, plane in a sense, but yes i think that it right now people are so receptive to change people are very disgruntled with you know as their eyes have woke you know people come aware of what's really going on behind the scenes i think you'd have a very receptive audience for introducing a new model but it needs to be articulated you do need to write this book and it needs to be you know almost um a think tank to kind of work around and figure out how do we implement this in a yes. practical yes. way, efficiently, and um, it's it's a marvelous idea. You should you should be yeah, talking. Absolutely. Well, there's so many different people that you could uh, collaborate with on something like this. But uh, I, I,
1: I, I'm sure, and you, you will you will certainly be one of the people that I'll keep in the loop. Uh, oh, I'm
0: I'm intrigued. Because no one ever really offers up a new model. It's it's, it's always it's, there's a lot very, of complaining.
1: And I've I've devoted the last thirty years of my life to to researching this. You know, I've I've been I've been looking into this ever since you'll remember in nineteen eighties when Sting went to the Amazon rainforest to try to prevent deforestation mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. and
1: to try to prevent these all these all these timber companies from displacing the 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 natives in the amazon rainforest and you know like i was i was 16 years old at the time and that was a wonderful initiative but even though i didn't understand a thing about any of it intuitively i knew that sting's wonderful initiative was doomed that it had no chance and ever since then i was asking myself but why why should it be that way it took me a very long time to work it out but it's ultimately it always boils down to money and uh, we will change the world if we move from fraudulent money to honest money and transparent credit Mm
0: transparency is key and credit credit The the whole model well I wonder how you can best move forward. I mean, one thing is to write the book, but the second part, more importantly, is even to implement it. And where do you envision that you might have the most captive audience to implement something like this? Do you think it it would? What country would be what country would be the most receptive? Uh,
1: The the, the answer that I wanted to give you, but I don't know, is, is Russia. But the reason why I say this is because the leadership of Russia is keenly aware of the problem, and Russia is is a nation that can defend its borders. They mm-hmm. can defend themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: you know they can mm-hmm. they can resist sanctions. They can resist uh, military invasions. Uh, so I, but, but you know they are working on that, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if the solutions that I Uh, mentioned here aren't already being worked on in Russia.
0: Oh, interesting. Have you ever had a conversation about this model with anyone in Russia? Uh,
1: With anyone waiting? I I never never said this to anybody yet. Mm -hmm. Mm But I I was uh, in Baku in October last year at the Eurasia Integrations Conference, and Sergei Glazi was there, actually. And uh, we had a couple of panels there were people from the Russian Central Bank, there were people from, well, there were people from everywhere, you know, like from 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 Azerbaijan, from uh, France, from Germany, from Italy. But I didn't take notes and I don't remember specifically, but on one panel, one of the Russian presenters, what he was saying to me indicated that they're on the track of these solutions. Mm. And so I, I I think that we might we might see similar solutions actually uh, crystallize in Russia. I don't know, but
0: wouldn't know, that wouldn't might. that be wouldn't that be exciting? Um, and you
1: that will be, be absolutely exciting. Yeah, that, absolutely. Be absolutely exciting. yes.
0: Because yes. this is massive. The
1: the the, the, the money
0: system is. is foundational to a better society. And yes. so I find it fascinating that you've been thinking about this for 30, 30 years or so. Um, I also find it fascinating that you haven't had time. Well, I'm not surprised you haven't had time to write it down. But you better get on it, um, yeah, get that yeah. book written because that will that could open the floodgates that the great minds of today start thinking well, outside.
1: Um, all right. So you you better you better,
0: uh, you better uh, get on it. How how quickly yeah. can you write a book? How how when you decide to start a project like this, are you quite speedy?
1: No, I would say it would take me a year or two.
0: Oh dear. Could you could you give a little teaser, maybe even to get the concept out there? You need to maybe write a substack on it, and start articulating this model, um, because I that's think a, the world needs.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. I might, yeah, yeah. I might, I might do something like that. I might do something like that. And
0: maybe that's make that. it a multi-series, you know. Um, and I would love to have you on again to talk about this specifically. And maybe you could tell me some other uh, minds that to have, you know, maybe have a few people on to discuss it. It's worthy of a conversation because the banking system is so grotesquely corrupted and insidious and and destructive in society that the faster that we can, uh, you know, throw it out. And, and we can it, it, it needs. Yes, yes, it's
2: absolutely.
0: one of the root causes of of uh, you know when you look at uh, societal. No, no,
1: I, I, I don't think it's one of the root causes. I think it, maybe it's, it's the, the root cause. Maybe it is it, the. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's absolutely the central element of of everything that's wrong in society. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, it's,
0: I would agree because, with you. It's
1: because a lot of everything else. Emanates exactly from that that's that's the element that poisons everything else. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it doesn't reflect the values of real people for those that the 95% that have a good heart we you know it the the current system doesn't reflect our values and so
2: no no no, no, it
0: doesn't but this new model would and everyone wants to fix the current system and I don't think it's fixable I think you no. need a, I think you need a new No, it needs
2: to be scrapped. It needs yeah, to be scrapped. Just
0: scrap it and start from scratch. You really have tremendous kind of clarity on where the world is at. Um, and that might be your your roots. Being raised in a communist country, I think you've got the radar up.
1: It, it, yeah, it helps. It helps having been able to see uh, the world from two different systems. Yeah, that yeah. definitely helps.
0: Yes. So thank you for your time today. Thank uh, you for having
1: me, and it was absolutely a pleasure.
0: Okay, we'll talk again. Thank you.